1: Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Game History. The History, history of Games.
2: Games!
1: This is a spin off episode of our typical show. Uh, we've talked for a while about doing some additional content uh, that we could do on Patreon and some other bonuses for you. And uh, we have a lot of stuff in development, and it's probably going to be officially launched off the ground in uh, early 2022. But uh, we have a lot of cool plans for it. But something that I wanted to do was game history. I was inspired by James's work on the show, and I absolutely cannot commit to doing an episode a week. Um, uh. So this is planned to be a monthly show. Um, however, for a special surprise and, you know, to kind of get you guys uh, acquainted with what this might be like, I want to do the first episode today totally for free. And I don't know how much of our audience is interested in games particularly, but whether you've never played a game before or have logged hundreds of hours into just your PS5 already... I think this show will be a fun time. My attempt will be to uh, find cool and interesting stories within the game's uh, history and the game's industry and tell them in ways that everyone should be able to understand. Um, I, I want to focus more on like the events that happen and not get into like the actual you know, on game hist- on film mm. history, you don't really talk about like how a movie's made, we just talk about the story of it getting made. And it's right. the same thing here. Um, I get a lot of heat on film history for not knowing some obvious stuff. Uh, but <laughs> oh no.
2: no, he we love that's, it, but the that's script will the be
0: mechanism of the, the equation, man. exactly that's what makes work, exactly. Uh, now but this gonna, time, see, we're gonna jump into the metaverse now, and we're all just gonna become an NFT, and you're gonna rule your own metaverse world, <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah, exactly. Right, so right,
0: in the, video the script game is
1: realm.
2: flipped today because yeah. now we are in my wheelhouse. I don't even know what to do. I'm over <laughs> here in front of my laptop. I'm thinking, like, should I, like, uh, just, uh, you know, watch some porn while I'm over here? I don't, <laughs> what guys, do you guys do usually while I'm over here? Well, I watch like, the what levels. Is,
0: what is a video game?
1: I want to start with that. Start with what is a video game. It's like a, it's like a board game, but on a computer. <laughs> oh,
0: shit! was a computer? It's like...
2: <laughs> what's a computer? It's one of those things you can look at porn on. It's one of those things that weighed two tons in the 40s. Yeah, it's a porn machine. But uh, A two-ton but, porn machine. But no question is too stupid. If you guys
1: don't understand something, let me know. Oh, if I'm I, so I just If wanna... I get too...
0: To let you guys and the audience know that we made it two minutes and fifty-eight seconds before we talked about porn.
2: We did. We did good. <laughs> we set a record for for the FHHF universe here today.
3: <laughs> We're, doing great.
1: We the game. We're yeah.
2: doing great. We're doing great. We're doing good.
1: You know, if I get if I get too in the weeds of something, if I get too jargony, let me know, and I, I can this. I can I can simplify it nah, up. But uh, this is good. This is good. Without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, all others who listen, my name is Drake Cummings, and I'll be guiding you through. This journey through game history, joined by my illustrious co-hosts, James Wyatt Scott. Hello, hello, hello. And
2: Sailor Dev.
0: Drake, I just realized that your name is a porn star name.
2: Yes. Yeah, Drake Cummings <laughs> is absolutely. Your absolutely. parents named you after No wonder porn. Yeah. I'm, I'm like
0: subconsciously recalling porn scenes, and you know. Yeah, as, I, <laughs> I am.
1: I am currently a free agent. If anyone needs uh, uh, freelance work for their uh, OnlyFans, hit me up. Uh, I, <laughs> Yo, all my the ladies vary.
0: watching Game History podcast. <laughs> hey,
1: well, hey, we'll get into that. Well, that is an episode one day yeah. actually. So the whole reason that video games are considered like a male thing is because back in the days when uh, game consoles were going on store shelves, there was a boys' aisle and there was a girls' aisle. What? And the stores were like, well, we can't put them on both aisles. You have to choose. Is this a boy toy or a girl toy? Oh, and they just play. I guess it's a boy it's toy, I guess. Sense. and uh, so am a boy toy. So that is what started the whole perception that games were primarily like a male-dominant uh. medium. That will be a whole episode one day. That's going to be on the episode where we talk about uh, how Nintendo saved the video game industry from certain doom following the uh, the crash as a direct result of ET. I love. That. Oh um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that will that will probably be the first episode on
2: Patreon, is because that's really the origin of game history. While we do game history, the history of games, can we be referred to as boy toys from now on? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Listen, James. I try not to w- mix my personal and my professional life.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can call me a boy toy later at your house, Dev. In Florida.
1: <laughs> I guess you guys were all wondering what today's episode is about. Yes. What the topic is. Have you ever heard of a game called Die Katana? Dev, I've
0: heard it, but I don't remember what it is, and I don't remember anything about it. It's.
2: Ooh. I've heard of it as well The only thing that I really knew about it Is it was spelled D-A-I-Katana Yep, Katana. yep. Yeah. Because it's a Japanese
1: word Interesting It means
2: big sword in Oh Japanese. Nice. <laughs> That was also one of my porn <laughs> names Big sword the boy the boy toy <laughs>
1: Yeah just direct translation to big sword in Japanese <laughs> But Not mention words Before I talk about what Dai Katana is And why we're talking about it James I'm gonna steal a uh, segment from you Oh do it Before I talk about where are we
2: where are we?
1: <laughs> because I first want to talk a little bit about where the world was when this game came out. And uh, then we're going to lead directly into why we're talking about this in particular. Because when it came out is part of the story. Okay. So, <clears throat> I have a, I have a bit of a monologue here if you guys would uh, indulge me for a moment.
0: Let's Only if you do a voice. <laughs> <laughs> the time period
1: was the mid to late 90s. Kirk Cobain had just introduced himself to the loud end of a talkative shotgun in 94.
0: <laughs> I know it's going to be pain in the ass, but that would be pretty cool if we did the whole thing with Hunter. But, like, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Absolutely. I will, I will, I will. Yeah. It's a struggle, it's a lot, I know. But yeah, do,
1: do a tragic event in the midst of a tragic decade. Darker than most seemed to remember, but who could blame you? After all, the time was filled with fun colors, wacky fashion, and the fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But behind all the purple and cyan pastels was a darker reality. An era introduced by the L.A. riots, capped off with of the Columbine shooting and the Oklahoma city bombing, and the Waco siege, fit snugly in the middle. The eardrums of the youth were filled with nine-inch nails and metallica. For every brightly colored, windbreak-wearing, cheer captain, there was a greasy, long-haired kid wearing all black, blaring metal music, and scanning through the forum posts of the information superhighway. The world was changing as we moved into the digital future. Computers and the internet finally gave an escape to those seeking it. Now people could send some electronic mail or hop into a chat room and have a nuanced discussion of how the president sexually exploited a young impressionable intern or in many cases ignorantly victim blamed and continued (laughs) ignorantly victim blamed and contributed to the negative uh, diatribe that would effectively ruin that 22 year old's chance of a normal life. But if you need a distraction from the political clown show you could use that same computer to experience the cutting edge of the medium positioned at the crossroads of entertainment and technology. Video games he was moving into the future, being propelled by the hype of two new things 3D and online play. A strange new competitor in space also arrived. Sony, not just making Walkmans anymore, the tech giant from Japan, decided to enter the console market. The PS1 came out in December of '94, a thing that Kirk Cobain would never get to play on account of him having a bullet in his mouth. <laughs> Maybe if he had experienced the raw power of Ridge Racer, he would see that maybe life isn't so bad.
0: (laughs) You know who else put a bullet in his mouth? Hunter Thompson.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is why. This is why Hunter Thompson saw the loud mouth of the barrel of a revolver in 2005.
1: But our story today isn't about how PlayStation could have saved Kirk Cobain had it just been a few months earlier to the market. It's about how the most ambitious, most cutting-edge PC game, directed by one of the biggest names in games at the time, shows us what happens
2: when you fly too close to the sun. Ooh, Ooh. Riders on the storm. Well done, Sonzo
0: Gaming in the building. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Dude, man, that was great. Man. Thank that you. was awesome. very good. Well done. I like Thank the you. end. Yeah.
0: That was great poetry of painting a picture at the end. Well,
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, because I do feel like a lot of people remember the remember the nineties as being this fun, wacky time, but a lot of dark shit happened. Oh, dude, in the it 90s. was one of the
2: darkest, most depressing times in the world. And
1: that was when grunge was a big thing, metal yeah. music was becoming a big thing. You know, especially if you're if you're a depressed kid with long greasy hair wearing a metallica t-shirt, like you love the internet. Like the yeah. internet's your favorite place because you yeah. can go and take out all your aggression on these anonymous online forums and no one knows that you're the weird Columbine shooter and yeah. shit. You know what I mean? So what
0: was uh, <laughs> this again exactly?
1: Um, so our story takes place primarily throughout the nineties. Um, because uh, this game, Die Katana uh was originally supposed to come out at a specific time. It was supposed to come out in the mid-90s, and it got delayed for an exorbitant amount of time and ended up coming out in 2000.
2: Gotcha. So
1: it's kind of... But the story about this is kind of like... it. The 90s is an important time because, as I mentioned, in video games... Like, a lot was changing in the 90s. We are moving from 2D to 3D. Online play was a big new thing. And so we were at this crossroads of this emerging technology where video games were changing. And everyone was trying to, for the first time, I feel like, this has always happened in games. But chasing the cutting edge was becoming a very new thing. Mm. Like, the technology was advancing so quick yeah. that you could start developing a game. And then the engine changes. And now everything all your competitors look better than you. And so you have to make the choice. Do you continue building this game on the technology you've been building it on and release looking slightly outdated? Or do you scrap everything and start from scratch to try and chase the cutting edge? It's like trying to finish the painting. Right. Yeah. And what a lot of developers in this time period found out was that chasing the cutting edge just gets you cut. For sure. (laughs) Like, um, another one, an episode that we'll do one day that's a very similar story to Daikatana is Duke Nukem Forever. Okay. That game notoriously was in development for over a decade, you know? Jesus. And um we'll get into we'll get into why. Well this yeah. this whole story, we'll no, get into what happened. But Daikatana is one of the most notorious failures in all of game history. Oh, it failed. Okay. Yeah, so Daikatana is a game notorious for being like um the 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 chosen one. He was it was it should have been. It should have been this amazing, perfect game. All the stars were aligning. We'll talk about the designer of this game. Uh but this guy was like the number one. If there is a rock star in video games, it was this guy. He was like the he was the chosen one to make to bring together this revolutionary game on the cutting edge of PC technology. Yeah. And it it uh it didn't turn out good for anyone involved. Uh, <laughs> and what was
2: the date it came out? 2000. It came out in 2000. So we'll we'll get into it. So, you know, did we you ever did hear an, about an
0: episode very similar to this on film history, the history of film, <laughs> not to shamelessly plug our own show. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but there was another, of... you know, what was the oh. other uh, mechanical invention that, you know, what was supposed to be the chosen one and I don't know unsinkable is another word that song oh is. yeah
2: you're yeah. talking about water world <laughs> did you ever hear Hunter S. Thompson's quote on 9-11 by the way no I never put it together you know he died in 2005 and surely yeah. Hunter S. Thompson was alive and had something to say for 9-11 and he did he said uh, the towers are gone now reduced to bloody rubble along with all hopes for the peace in our time wow in the United States or any other country Make no mistake about it, we are at war now with somebody, and we will stay at war with that mysterious enemy for the rest of our lives. Wow.
1: Man. Holy shit, what a
2: prophet. That's why he's our god.
1: (laughs) I knew a little bit about the story going into it, I knew it was going to be a story about this disaster, but everything I learned behind the scenes was even more fascinating than I I knew, and I, I would dive into this rabbit hole of like, holy shit, this keeps getting more interesting and more funny the longer I go. So, like many Colossal Failures, it was primed for greatness, and as we go through this, I will give you the setup, the context, and the explanation of how it all fell apart. Mm-hmm. But I want to start by giving the basics of the game, and then we're going to talk about the, that the, you cannot separate this game from its director, a guy named John Romero. Have you guys heard of John Romero? Like a, like,
2: part of the Romero, Romero's? No, like zombie Romero? No, like George Romero. No no no, okay. no, 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 yeah. completely Tony different Roma? guy. Okay, but
1: <laughs> but this is also going to be the story of John Romero, and John Romero is a guy worth talking about. He deserves a, a chapter in the history of game history. But um, uh, you know, I'll ask you guys at the end what you think of him after all this. But uh, all right. I want to start off by giving you some basic information about the game. Uh, it was developed by a studio named Ion Storm. It was published by Edos Interactive, which Edos is still Ooh, around. Edos, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. still around. They're the only ones who made out of this story alive. Gotcha. <laughs> so, um, it was directed by John Romero, uh, producer Kelly Homer, lead programmer Sean C. Green, lead artist Jeremiah O. Flattery, and Eric Smith, lead writer George Gonzalez, composers Al Chaney, Will Lecanto Will Nevins, Stan Nuvo, and Robert Owens, it was developed on the id Tech 2 engine. It released on Microsoft Windows, Nintendo 64, and there was a really weird version on the Game Boy that we'll talk about at the very Interesting. end. Interesting, okay. Uh, it was released on Windows in North America on May 22nd, 2000, uh, following a, uh, and then Europe got it on June 9th, and Japan got it on June 30th. Nintendo 64 release uh, it, uh, came out first in Japan, actually, on April 7th, 2000. And, uh, you know, the rest of the territories later. We'll talk about the N64 version. It's also really weird. Gotcha. <laughs> nothing about this game is... Nothing about the story is normal. Right. Everything about this is super fucking weird. But awesome. the game is a first-person shooter, uh, which you'll find out is what John Romero uh, was not only known for, but uh, had a big hand in uh, creating the concept of... Oh, gotcha. Okay. So um, it has single-player and a multiplayer mode. And so that's the general stuff on the game we'll get into more specifics about the story and the uh, gameplay See some that screenshots
2: stuff. here it looked beautiful it, it looked really good for the time it was cool it, oh, yeah. I, I would I so I didn't I'm surprised I didn't know about this I would have gone nuts over this game as a kid <laughs> Dude, we're not missing much so. Gotcha.
1: so I say first-person shooters in the in the 90s what are some games that you guys think of
2: ooh first-person shooters I mean of course there's doom
1: right doom
2: um, man the 90s Wolfenstein. I mean it's Wolfenstein. All oh, right, Wolfenstein. Yeah, Wolfenstein,
1: Doom, uh, Quake. Um, yeah. Uh, Columbine. <laughs> 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 yeah, that one happened too. That was... Uh... Uh, they only got to play that one once, though. Then it got discontinued. Not sure why. Well,
0: I mean, <laughs> the game kept coming out with more versions. <sighs> but yeah, that's yeah,
2: They right. did keep releasing. They've overdone one. it by now, to be honest. Yeah, but you can you only know. you can only play it once, though. Yeah, so you the genre is uh, very saturated yeah. at this point. It could use some deviation. This is for Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> this first episode's going up to everybody. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. All right. Never mind. Forget I said Columbine.
1: Uh, and the Duke Nukem was so big at this time, but Doom, Quake, and Wolfenstein those Three are important, um, and we'll get into why in just a sec. But uh, the game controls a sword master who travels through various time periods in an effort to obtain the Daikatana, a powerful sword tied to the fate of the world. That's awesome. Daikatana in Japan means big sword, as I said before, and it was a full 3D, fully 3D game. Um, which was still very new at the time. A lot of people think that Wolfenstein 3D or Doom was a 3D game, especially because Wolfenstein had 3D in the name, uh, but they were not actually 3D games. Uh, Computers back then were not powerful enough to render 3D graphics. Gotcha. It's very hard to explain the technology, but basically... Like, what you're seeing when you play Doom or Wolfenstein is uh, pixel art. It's 2D pixel art that is scaled up or down as you move around to make it appear like it's getting closer or farther away. But you're just looking at 2D sprites. Yeah, you ever uh, see a-
0: those glitches when you're playing? Them? I had Wolfenstein, mm-hmm. that's why I listed it. That was, I was addicted to that game. But, like, you would yeah. come into a glitch where you'd hit a wall and then you would see, like, the wireframing. And she, oh and you'd yeah, be like, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, this is really yeah. just uh, an image, <laughs> this <laughs> right?
2: Is, this is all just a lie, just right? Well, is like
0: are... the early Super Nintendo games, like I remember James mm-hmm. Bond Super NES. The character James Bond st- stayed in the middle of the screen, and the world moved around him. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah.
1: But this is more even more rudimentary than that. And what you're seeing actually wasn't a wireframe because a wireframe can only go on 3D models. Uh, again, everything was 2D sprites, and right. um, but do so they have, in the. Like,
0: the 2d wires like like as if like it's if probably like a grid a hallway, you're probably like it's like yeah the wires go like narrow upward you know well I mean? so
1: right so the way it works is it uses this technology called ray casting where the computer will send out a ray and then the computer me- measures measures the, the ray is sent out from the player character and it goes until it hits a pixel and then it measures the distance between the player character and the pixel, and that's how it knows how large to draw the pixel. Whoa. So the oh, shorter okay, the ray is, the larger it is, because it, you're supposed to mimic you being closer to that pixel.
2: Interesting. So okay. it's it's that's using awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. By the way, the oh, lighting that in this shit game
0: is fascinating.
2: That is fascinating. Yeah. And also, I'm watching like a little YouTube video. It, the lighting is amazing. This looks really good. Are you looking at Daikatana? Yeah. Daikatana
0: is
1: actually 3D. So that's yeah. the thing. Daikatana was 3D. But um, Wolfenstein is is pretty rudimentary. If you squint hard enough knowing this, you can see the, the, the well, magic.
2: And what's interesting about that? I don't mean to cut you mm-hmm. off, oh, but no, like uh, this was a big uh, point of contention for me as a kid. You know, I am ancient. I'm a hundred thousand years old. Um, when I was a <laughs> kid, you know, I had Sega Genesis, uh, and I, I was never a Nintendo guy. I was always a Sega Genesis. I had Sega Channel. Mm-hmm. So Sega Genesis, you could plug in a coaxial cable from your <laughs> cable vision. Into your Sega Genesis mm-hmm. and stream games uh, monthly and uh, oh
1: my god I remember that yes yes like, that it, was
2: that I, was wild technology that I was like, wild magic. I was streaming yeah. video games uh, twenty years before streaming video yeah. games was a thing <laughs> that's
1: the thing none of these ideas are new they're yeah. just like they were just impossible to right. pull off exactly. officially. like but like these ideas have been around forever I mean VR has been around since the yeah. uh, the the nineties yeah or the eighties so. even yeah with but, the with the the Virtual Boy
2: but I was always in search. Like I Mm -hmm. said, Daikatana I'm sitting here watching now, I Mm -hmm. would have if I had known about this, gone absolutely crazy for Mm -hmm. this. I was in search for this exact thing. Like, first person 3D environments. Mm -hmm. Even when Mario 64 came out and Mm -hmm. you could move freely, you know? It was... I thought we had entered in... And we had, but Mm -hmm. it was like a whole new...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the thing. It was blowing people's minds. I mean, this idea of being able to fully move through, because like... So, uh, Wolfenstein is relatively rudimentary. Like I said, if you understand what's happening behind the curtain and you squint hard enough, you can see it. Right. The real impressive one to me is Doom. Because Doom is not 3D and it is really impressive really? because in, on Wolfenstein, you're always on a single floor. You never walk upstairs. Yeah. Doom, they fake elevation, which wow. is really crazy to me. And I, they use a different technology than the ray casting. And I am not smart enough to understand what is happening in doom, but it is a very impressive magic trick. Um, but you can see a, the behind the curtain a little bit where if you're playing doom and you're on the second floor and there's an enemy on the first floor, you can't move the gun up or down. You only move the gun left or right. Right. And if you're shooting at in the direction of the enemy, even if it looks like you're shooting over his head, you're still hitting him. Right. And that's because there actually is no elevation in Doom. Um, and there's actually no... You're never... a. You're never. You go onto. It looks like you go onto second floors, but you're actually never below where you would be. the The staircase always goes off to the left or the right. Interesting. Because again, nothing can actually be underneath itself. It's a two D plane that you're moving through, and it's 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 faking it. It's it's a really impressive magic trick. But eventually, the goal was to get to fully three D games, and Quake was actually three D. So, Quake was the first. So Wolfenstein and Doom and Quake are all developed by a company called id. Have you guys heard of id? Mm. So I don't think so. id is a very prolific PC developer. They're still around today. They still make Doom. They they're owned by Bethesda now, which Bethesda is owned by Microsoft now and stuff. So, yeah, sure. you know, these companies get absorbed, but that id is still around and id is credited with creating the first person shooter. Okay. Um and uh it is uh so are the hero of our story, John Romero, John Romero and John Carmike are both credited with being the guys who created the first person shooter genre. They founded id. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that one day id and John Carmike will be its own episode. Uh, John Carmike is a genius programmer. This man is he he left video games a while ago. He's now developing rocket technology. Wow. Like John Carmike is a genius. Good lord. Um and John Carmike and ID will be its own episode one day, but we'll touch on him a little bit here because that's where John Romero started and it's paramountly important for understanding John Romero's origin story. Yeah. But
0: I would the love world to touch
1: of on true it. 3D games was brand new and constantly changing. And in this wild west came Daikatana, which was an incredibly ambitious game in the space. Uh, it featured 24 levels, only 18 on the N64 version. Uh, it was divided into four episodes, each episode representing a different location and time period. You had 25th century Japan, that was in 2455 AD. Ancient Greece, that was 1200 BC. The Dark Ages in Norway, which was 560 AD, and a near-future San Francisco in 2030 AD. Awesome. So those are the time periods you're hopping around. So it was this epic time-traveling you yeah. know, escapade across the globe. Um, and it had melee combat and a super involved story and there was voice acting and puzzle solving and advanced AI. And that was the thing like voice acting wasn't a standard at this time. Uh, first person shooters didn't feature stories at this time. Um, you know, melee combat wasn't in first-person shooters at this time. Right. Um, the, the AI was supposed to be this revolutionary technology. The game's main hook was you had two AI components that helped you through combat and solve puzzles. So the computer is playing these two characters that can solve puzzles with you and fight with you. And are, Like, this was unheard of at the time. All of this was just like the a groundbreaking... Uh, promise wow that no like no one and everyone thought they could pull it off because it was John Romero right and again we'll talk more about why people trusted John Romero so much in just a bit
2: have you heard of uh what John Carmack is also up to now no. He was a key architect of Metaverse. Oh, yeah. that, that tracks. Yep. He, uh, he was one of the big creators of Metaverse. He's one of them that's really pushing it right now. Cool,
1: that makes sense for him.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he's Fucked like... Fucked rockets for a little bit. He's like, I'm going to go revolutionize <laughs> yeah. video games again. What
0: do you mean Metaverse? Like, Facebook's Meta...
2: Yeah, Facebook's like metaverse. Face- baby. Oh, he's working at Facebook now. Yeah, I mean that's. Oh, yeah. I think
1: he was involved in Oculus too, wasn't
2: he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he's yeah, a big yeah. one. Went which makes Oculus. sense. I mean, you think about yeah. it, that's like the ultimate evolution, evolution of first person. Yeah. yeah is, mm-hmm. oh, I'm so obsessed with VR. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jay, I forgot John Carmack. yeah, he was he was a big big guy pushing VR and stuff. By the way,
2: yeah. if you haven't gotten into VR yet, just do it. Yeah, the three hundred dollars Oculus Rift. It, it is uh, two hundred and fifty gigs worth of space that you hardly even need that much for because these VR games don't even take up that much room. It's life-changing, y'all. I'm telling you, I'm shouting it down from the mountaintops. Everyone needs to get VR now. Go get your Oculus Rift. It's... It is the evolution of video games, in my opinion. I really mm-hmm. honestly think that I, I play games now on my PC and say this should be in VR. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, everything absolutely. should yeah. just be in VR. Anything
1: in first opinion. person, I want to play in VR. Absolutely. And, I mean, even stuff that's not first person. I played uh, Astrobot, which was a 3D platform on a PlayStation VR, and playing that felt like the way people felt the first time they played Mario 64. Yeah. It was like entering 3D again. It was yeah. like. This is a whole new dimension. It's a whole new way. Yeah, like Uh, Dev... I
0: just can't wait to read title drake cummings presents a vr experience <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh the vr porn is no joke don't get me wrong vr porn is also a very good thing awesome. uh, it, it probably could prevent a lot of school shootings if we just like had more people in maybe VR uh, porn. If,
1: if vr porn had been around colin biden want to happen yep. and uh um kurt cobain would still be alive <laughs> but, like i'm saying if, if playstation One to come out in the summer of 94 instead of the winter Kirk Cobain would be a fat, be angry a man right now. Yep. He'd be
2: exactly. He'd be a he'd be a depressed, washed up uh, magician. A magician. And if you put a VR headset on <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson, he he wouldn't have had to have killed himself. He would just would have died of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he he man. was
0: already pretty much living in a VR headset with the amount of cocaine and That's <laughs> on a so. regular basis.
1: So I'm about to rewind.
2: Back in time. Back in time. Um to uh
1: <laughs> to give some context of John Romero John Romero Ed and then we'll lead into the founding of Ion Storm. Do you guys have any questions so far? No. I'm Accent. Fall, I'm loving this. Accent. I'm loving this. Accent. Well, the story of Dai Katana is also the story of John Romero. And to understand what truly happened, we need to first go back to nineteen sixty seven.
2: Oh, wait, 1967? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Riders on the (laughs) stone. The year of John's
1: birth. John was born October 28th, 1967 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Making him 54 at the time of writing. He's still alive. He's still around. He's still making games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a Mexican and Native American mixed background and is a first-generation Mexican-American. So this is one thing that's cool about games is games is... It's a little bit more diverse than a lot of other entertainment mediums. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's such a global medium. You know, it's something that really started in earnest in Japan and. You can make a game from all over the globe. And the games are also way easier to like localize and stuff too. Uh, And also maybe because the people who make the games aren't as front facing. So a lot of people who, you know, might have some prejudice or biases don't even know that the stuff they're enjoying is made by people that they supposedly hate. I'm not sure why it is, but games for whatever reason, fortunately, is a very diverse medium and background. And I mean, we're talking about one of the like grandfathers of modern game design um, you know, being a a, a first generation Mexican American, I love that.
2: That's cool. You yeah. know, that's not
1: something that's super common in other industries. That is
2: no, you're absolutely right. Uh, video games have absolutely always sort of um, transversed that those boundaries. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think video games have always reached. Everyone in a way differently, mm-hmm. you know, but I, definitely. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: So, Lil John.
2: Lil John.
1: Lil John. Little hey! John. Okay. okay. <laughs> Video game. Yeah. Lil John. Yeah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lil John and his friends. What? <laughs> <laughs> Lil John's friends love games. I ni- mean, <laughs> <sorry. laughs> in 1979, <laughs> they discovered they could play games for free. By going to the computer lab at the nearby college and play some simple early PC games. No more paying a whole quarter for arcade machines. Which, hey, you run that 1979 quarter through the old inflation <laughs> calculator. Thanks hey. for letting me borrow that, by the way. Uh, that is 96 cents. Nearly nice. a dollar what? to play a. What? <laughs> <laughs> To clip that out <laughs> as a sound effect that I'm gonna use throughout club history now. Okay, okay.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is nearly a dollar for a kid in 1979. Forget about it, it might as well it. be a million dollars. Yeah, the college computers had simple games, mostly text adventure stuff, but this was perfect for John because he found this inspiring. He said, The games in arcades seem like they're made by aliens, but the ones in the computer lab. They were obtainable. They seemed like something I could learn to do, and he did indeed learn to do it. This yes. is also something pretty miraculous about guys back in this day. Games was so new; you don't, you didn't go to school for it. it there was the internet didn't really exist in a capacity where you could just like watch you. You know, you couldn't watch YouTube videos like. A lot of these early game designers taught themselves how to code in the 70s and early
2: 80s. Right. I don't know how the fuck you do that. Oh, <laughs> like Lord. That is insane. Yes, especially back in those days. You're talking about guys learning how to do this shit on like you would also have a bunch of hardware and mm-hmm. tools and shit. Like mm-hmm. this was, you know, nowadays everything is uh, interface. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's the thing. He's 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 coding on DOS. Like yeah. Is, everything is looks like the Matrix. It looks what? like. A... <laughs> And I mean, he started programming his games on Apple II computer. They got in nineteen eighty 1980 or nineteen eighty-two, depending Good on Lord. the source. Uh, he taught himself, but this was very common. There's so many. Uh, game designers like legendary game designers that learned on an apple 2 computer steve jobs is directly responsible for like facilitating the ability for a uh, most of modern game design to exist <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for steve jobs making the apple II computer a sexy fun cool easy to use for the time computer yeah. you know who knows where we'd be but um he... steve
2: jobs knew all about sexy and fun and easy to use
1: <laughs> But uh, John John said that once he got an Apple computer, he was, quote, done going outside. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: That's that's exactly what I said when I bought that Oculus Quest. I was like, if they put Grand Theft Auto 5 on Oculus, I will never go outside again. They're putting Sandreas Andreas on it. I, I know, and uh, when that happens, sayonara, everyone. I'll be making film history from the living room of CJ's house in Grand Theft Auto. Like <laughs> It'll all be remote, and yeah, my face will become video game.
1: (laughs) Do yourselves a favor, just look up a picture of John Romero real quick. I did.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks exactly how you think he would look. Uh, It looks exactly how I would hope him to look. (laughs) Yeah. He looks exactly how I would want him to look because that is one thing that we will talk about here on this iteration of film history, game history, is the evolution of video games becoming, I'm so glad that they have become so mainstream, but Mm -hmm. it is very interesting now who you find playing video games Mm -hmm. And the face of it has changed as well, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. John Romero nowadays is, uh, those guys all look like CEOs and business suits and handsome faces, it's, you know? It's funny, because
1: we'll get into that, how, like, the the aesthetic of these guys very much, like, in a weird way, their nerdy aesthetic made them more of a rock star. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, but yeah, John Romero... Weezer
2: made that happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's not modeled after the, uh, what's-his-face from Grandma's Boy?
1: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I actually hate that movie. It gets... I hate Grandma! Grandma's boy. It gets everything wrong, and there's yeah. there's zero. Th- that movie had zero interest in like grounding any of it in how the industry actually works or anything like you that. Also, the just, oh. like
0: Mythic Quest, right? because it also oh, yeah. is yeah. it also
1: is like zero research went into how the fuck a video game office works. <laughs> and I, I, look, I understand it's 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 a TV show, but the the crown jewel of how to do it that I always hold up is Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is an incredibly funny comedy that also gets the way. Uh, Silicon Valley works like it's yeah. actually it's a it's a movie that feel, it's a show that feels like it was written by people who actually understand what they're making jokes about right. and that's what makes it really funny to me um, you. have
0: you ever worked in a parks and rec department <laughs> <laughs> I have not <laughs> neither have I <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it works
1: <laughs> <laughs> but John Romero for listeners uh, he's got really long pitch black dark hair he, he looks like he's a um, roadie for Metallica yeah like, yeah yeah. He looks like he like plugs in the amps at a Metallica concert.
2: Damn. He looks like he loaded the shotgun for a coke band. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh man For all intents and purposes <laughs> Without coming out With this invention Sooner Yeah <laughs>
2: Absolutely That's Absolutely. the reason He held it off Yeah He's like as soon as That fucker dies I can finally come out With my Vigie game.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah I don't think He even started on it Before Kirko died. died.
3: Alright game.
1: <laughs> but, uh, but Romero His first published game Was a game called Scout Search uh, And it appeared In the 1984 issue Of Insider Magazine A popular Apple II magazine In the 19 80s and he was a promising young coder he started his own company called Capital Ideas Software and it was more just like a personal company you know it was like you know you started an LLC kind of thing it's so
2: wait Apple wait hold on the magazines
1: Okay, so yeah, so his the first game he published, which published we're using the term loosely. Yeah. I don't know if it was for sale anywhere, but it was it was available for people to download or something somewhere. There, I tried to get more information about this early era of him publishing games, yeah. and it kind of seemed like it was just like a kid in his parents' house who was finding a way to put very simple games he made available online for people to like very download.
2: Cool, and he would put the he would put like the code out there. I don't know how it works. I got gotcha. you. No, for sure. For how sure. Worked, for sure yeah. you know however, who, he did
0: how it. To, uh, do you know what other genius made video games and sold them as a kid? Elon Musk. Oh.
2: Really? Oh, Musky? Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. He was he making made, like, 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 first, uh, first, like first person Tesla.
0: or A th- couple hundred thousand mm. when he was like oh. a teenager, or, like 12 yeah. years old or some shit for making a game. So yeah, so maybe he was
1: selling these, maybe he wasn't. I don't think you were going right. into um, a Circuit City and buying these. No, I was just interested
2: in the Apple magazine city. Wow, name wow. drop. Circuit <laughs> but, City. But, <laughs> but, mean, Radio Shack.
1: Yeah, but I mean, however he did it, it was popular enough to uh, get the interest of Insider magazine. Yeah, uh, Insider, which, okay. Yeah, which was a popular Apple II magazine in the
2: 1980s. I did some work for Inside <laughs> magazine, but it was a whole different, that was that was different.
1: Uh but he was a promising young coder. Like I say, he started his own company, Capital Ideas, and um he was on the December cover of the Apple II magazine Nimble Dude. for three years in a row, starting in 1987. <laughs> okay. So How many like
0: you Apple know Apple II magazines were there.
2: That's <laughs> what I'm wondering. <laughs> Apple II <two laughs> magazine. I'm I'm looking this up now. Uh, now all I can find is uh Apple making magazines for guns for mass shootings.
1: But if- <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Everything goes back to Columbine. <laughs> <laughs> the nineties was a dark time, <laughs> damn it. Know, man.
2: The nineties was so dark. There was the
1: fucking Waco thing happening. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of shit going on.
2: The- Nibble Magazine, the magazine for the Apple II computer. Mm -hmm. And it helped jumpstart the personal computer revelation. So yeah, it was this whole, welcome to Nibble Magazine. It's hard to believe that more than 30 years after the Apple II came on the scene, there are still some enthusiasts gathering the bits and pieces that still linger from the 1980s. Yeah, it was like a magazine for your Apple II that you could get a, a subscription to. I mean,
1: so it probably, like, clued you in on games made by people who, like, didn't have a way to distribute it and stuff. Yeah. It's like, you like your Apple II? You want to play something on it? Like, this magazine will tell you very cool. it'll tell
0: you the coolest games, how to get them, you know. It ran for 12 so and a this half is years. Where Steve Jobs really excelled, because he yeah. was yeah. a cult builder. And this Absolutely. Is the of the cult. Start. Yeah, yeah, If man. it that wasn't for Apple, who knows if John Romero
1: would have ever learned how to no, code. No, well, yeah. he
2: might have learned, but if he was publishing it on this Nibble mm-hmm. thing, I mean, this was a huge publication for 12 mm-hmm. and a half years for people who mm-hmm. owned Apple too. And he was on the
1: cover of it for three years in a row. Oh, yeah, dude.
2: that's Like mm-hmm. Dev said, this was yeah. like the literature for yeah, the for cult. Yeah, for his kind, yeah. Yeah, man, yeah, so that's kind of where he, yeah. <laughs>
1: Interesting, <laughs> Um and he By was way, making I did
2: nipple magazine. <laughs> Sorry, nipple. go ahead. Right. I thought you said it's Nambla
0: at first, and I really <laughs> had to like double check. Uh.
2: Kurt Cobain was on the cover of Nambla magazine <laughs> three years in a row. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. Hopefully through little... the
1: decade, the biggest rock star in the world blows his brains out. What do you think that does to the culture? A <laughs> little
2: shell shot, if you hey. ask me, because, you know, shotgun shells. <laughs> uh, John oh Rivera my. was making a lot of <laughs>
1: games. His output was very consistent, and he worked a lot. His first actual industry job, though, was at a place called Origin Systems in 1987, and after programming his own games for eight years... Uh, he worked here for a little bit. So That's basically, cool. he was doing his own independent thing, making his own games for eight years. Self-published video game maker. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually, a bigger company like Origin Systems was like, hey, you're on the cover of magazines. You want to come and have a shitty job here? Yeah. And he was like, I guess. So. That's awesome. That's so awesome. He went He went. he worked there for a little bit, but he left to co-found a game company uh, called Inside Out Software. And they did a lot of Apple II and Commodore 64 games. You guys know what the Commodore oh, 64 is? Yeah,
2: man. Now we're getting into yeah. some, into some game history.
1: <laughs> yeah. So for those who don't know, the Commodore 64 was a. It was a personal computer that a lot of games just ran on. It was a very cheap personal computer. Um, you know, it was a it was an affordable option for a lot of families. And you know, you got the games on floppy disks from your old Radio Shack, and then you, you popped them into your your uh, your Commodore 64, and you're playing just. The, some of the worst games ever. Yeah, dude. But if at the time, you know,
0: what a what a novelty. Absolutely.
2: This is an 8-bit computer, January 1982 is when yeah. it was introduced.
0: I was hoping you guys were going to say it was a new Motown group, but, you know. <laughs> the
2: Commodores. <laughs> yes, dude. I thought that too. Uh,
0: at this company they started, they
1: mostly did a lot of Apple II and Commodore 64 ports. They ported from one system to the other, you know, and it was the kind of thing like nowadays, uh, nowadays it's, it's not quite the simple, but it's, Essentially, you press a button. You, yes. have, you build a game in Unreal Engine, you uh, build it for the PlayStation 4, right. then you press a different button to build it for the Xbox. Right. Back then, you had to co- recode the whole game. Jesus Christ. So like, doing a port was actually like a, a big job. It was a very needed job, because the company that like, made the game often didn't want to do a port, so you would contract out the subcompany to like port the yeah. game for you and stuff. So that's, that's a lot of what Inside Out Software did. Dude, um,
2: you know where that Commodore was introduced? Where? Was the CES... In Vegas in 1982. Wow! Consumer Electronics Show 1982 wow. in Las Vegas. Yeah, the Consumer Electronics Show would eventually spin off into E3. That'll yeah, be that's man. an episode one day. The yeah, origins of E3. For sure, that thing it was. It's still it's listed in the Guinness World Records as the highest selling single computer model of all time. Wow! Uh, it sold 17. Million units. Whoa! Yeah.
1: For days that's a lot. That's a lot of, a lot of Man, units. Man,
2: ain't no doubt. Uh, this thing it sold in August uh, for 595 dollars, August of 1982, and that is the uh, computer uh, inflation calculation equivalent. <laughs> Of fifteen hundred ninety six dollars. Wow! So it was like, yeah, it was like a gaming computer. Yeah, I mean, this was was like your like your thirty ninety option for families on the budgets. Like you
1: can't afford an Apple II, you get the Commodore sixty four. You're playing Superman. You're playing Spider Man.
2: That's sick. (laughs) That's (laughs) so cool. It was almost like. I mean that was like the uh, console before consoles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Like uh, computers were the consoles. I mean, I, I think
1: this is also around time like the Atari and stuff like that. But and we'll get into this in like the probably the next episode of History Game History we do is like the origins of games themselves. Games in this era, a lot of them were just marketing things. They were the yeah. equivalent of McDonald's toys. Right. Like they were designed mostly in conjunction of corporations to push a product. And this, movies in movies, this, and right, movies. And movies yeah. 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 And yeah, so yeah. this. Um, and this is what led to the video game crash and that, uh, uh, Nintendo eventually revitalized the video game industry because they're like, what if we made games as something other than marketing gimmicks? Right. Um, but well, that's a different episode for right now. Uh, the year is 1989 and, uh, uh, John Romero decided to lose, move to Louisiana. Why? And <laughs> soft Disc as a programmer. We're called swamp computers now. <laughs> so yeah, he moved to this company. He, he, had, he had enough of uh, porting Commodore 64 games, and he uh, thought Louisiana might be a nice change up from, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly where he's at this point, Based from Colorado. Louisiana's a different part of the country.
2: Our new you name know. is Gator Games. <laughs>
1: Gator Games. Gator Games. But he moved there uh, in 1989, and uh, the company was called Disc joined as a programmer and he hired a man by the name of John Carmike and we talked about John Carmike a little bit but uh him and John Carmike would uh th- this would end up being a, a, a pretty uh legendary duo, these two. Um, right. And uh, it's, it's crazy. I did not know that Romero hired John Carmike. He was yeah. like, you're, you're a dandy programmer. You, yeah. you want a now job? Now made the
2: metaverse.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> you want to come make a metaverse? Yeah. You want to come begin your career <laughs> and ultimately lead us down a road of uh, <laughs> all living in a virtual environment? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Do yeah, you want Carrick's to create like, a product that you know people in other countries are physically and chemically addicted to and have to
1: go <laughs> rehab? And John Carmack's like, start an
2: algorithm, brother. It's like,
1: that's exactly what I want. Exactly do. what I
2: want. <laughs> My goal is to one day have every single person strapped to a chair in their living room in a virtual headset. <laughs> that's when I'll be hot. Actually, John Carmack, by the way, he's not a bad-looking dude. A l-
1: okay, a lot of these guys aren't.
2: They just yeah. don't know how to groom themselves or
1: dress nicely (laughs) uh there's there's
0: a so so grandma's boy is an accurate reflection
1: (laughs) there's a there's there's a saying and i I believe this full heart i believe this my whole chest everyone can be a seven yeah
2: yeah, if you groom
1: yourself you work out a little bit if you take a shower
2: and you're in the video game world you're a 10 my friend
1: But everyone, if you work hard enough, you can be a seven two. Absolutely, for most people. You know, there's there's the exceptions,
2: but uh, you know, it's all about taking care of those yourself. kids in Columbine were at least a nine. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not sure how much this got. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 of in Columbine. None of it. All the Columbine. This is
2: Patreon, goddammit. This one's going up on for everyone. <laughs> oh shit, that's right. <laughs>
1: Anyways, this is also where he met Tom Hall, who will be an important character later in our story. But we'll get back to Tom Hall. Okay. But for now. Uh, After working together for a bit, they went out to start a little company of their own called id software. Uh, And like I said, id, legendary, legendary company. Um, I mean, they, you know, their credit of starting the first person shooter, they're still around today. You know, Doom, Quake, Wolfenstein, all these are grandfathers of the industry. That's crazy. Uh, And uh, supposedly the origins of Id was a really fun environment. Uh, From what I understand, these guys just got a, they got a cabin on the water in Louisiana and they all just lived in this cabin together and just made games together. It was like a small tight-knit group. It's
0: not the only thing they made together.
2: (laughs) Yeah, not on the water in Louisiana. (laughs) Made a lot of fucking meth and (laughs) and incest babies.
1: From everything I hear the first couple years of Id, it was a lot of fun. It was just basically a guy's hang out in a house, friends hang out in a oh, house Id. together.
2: I do know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, just, you know, uh, they would make games by day and at night they would play, you know, first person cheers together and order pizza and, you know, that's amazing. All sorts of stuff Smoke that didn't meth. involve putting a shotgun in your Smoke mouth.
2: Meth. <laughs> Hunt alligators. They'd wrestle <laughs> alligators. Hunt in between alligators. Coding. Yeah.
1: John did a lot at it. Uh, He was a game designer and producer on Heretic and and Hexen, which, so, John was known for this. John, like, he was the people guy. Like, John, uh, they're both named fucking John. Romero was the social dude. He liked people. He was very charismatic. He was outgoing. He loved, and he loved helping other companies. Like, uh, it didn't make Heretic and Hexen, but they would license out their software, and then Romero would give them advice, and he helped, and he's a, credited a lot with like being a di- designer and producer on games that weren't
2: just made by Id. He helped well, other people, too. And see, that that is that's one of the things that we've lost in the video game industry. Mm-hmm. One of the cool parts about the evolution of the video game industry is back in those days, I really do think it was this art form that not a lot of people were doing, mm-hmm. and they were so willing to share with other creators yeah. and be mm-hmm. a community. And uh, everyone's art was developing from each other, mm-hmm. and that has been shareware all lost. Yeah, now. shareware. I mean,
1: We're actually about to talk about that. The, the, the first couple things that it did, like it was famous for doing shareware, which was basically like giving out dem- like free product and demos and stuff. Right. And we'll talk about it because it's actually a reason why Doom became so popular. So J- Romero was the guy who was like, you can call it and ask Romero anything, and no matter what he's doing, he's going to drop it and he's going to help you out. He's going to talk to you on hours for the phone. Mm-hmm. Carmike. No. Yeah. Carmike did not want to be on the phone. Do not interrupt me from what I'm doing. I'm programming, and I'm not going to talk to you on the phone. Yeah. Uh, and so this is what made John and... Uh, this is what made... Oh, fucking named John. This is what made Carmike <laughs> and Romero a good team, but also is what led to some arguments later. and We'll, we'll get into sure. that, but I want to talk about the accolades of, of Romero for a little bit at, yeah. at id, because, uh, Dude, like
2: I said... how
0: angry do you think? You get on the phone, and he's like, hey... Uh, you know, I have some problems. God damn it! It's the other John. Wrong
2: extension. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. Wrong John. Yeah, I'm sure led to a lot of confusion in the office. <laughs> <laughs> Designer and producer on Heretic and Hexen. Uh, He designed most of the first episode of Doom. Uh, He he designed a fourth of the levels in Quake. Half the levers in Commander Keen and Wolfenstein 3D. He wrote many of the tools used at id, including level editors, launchers, servers, and just a lot of the boring stuff that makes games work behind the scenes. Uh, Two cool stories from the id days. And this kind of goes to the shareware thing we were talking about, is Doom was originally free. They made this game called Doom. And they took it around to stores and they said, if you put this in a box and you sell it on store shelves, you can keep 100% of the profits. Like, we, we don't want any of the money. We just want this game to be in people's hands. Here's the disc or floppy or whatever the fuck it was. Uh, and so there are countless numbers of Doom covers because the original Doom cover wasn't anything at all. Every Circuit City, every uh, Radio Shack, every... Um, Walmart or whoever the hell was selling this, they all made their own box. Right. And the, the cover yeah. that we recognize today was just like the one they liked the most. But at the time, like if you walked in, you could walk into two different stores in the mall and they were both selling the same Doom with two different covers. But this worked. The companies were like, we can keep 100% of the profits. Yeah, we'll, we don't care what the fuck is on this. We'll put it on the store shelves. And so they recommended a price for it. Doom was a sensation. Oh yeah! People loved it, and it One like the biggest put, video games ever in it, history. It put it on the map, and you know the rest. The rest was the rest will be talked about in the episode that we do on it and John Carmike. But uh, yeah. another fun uh, story is um, there's an Easter egg in the 30th level of Doom 2. There's a picture of Romero's head behind the boss, and the artist put it there as a joke, thinking that John wouldn't find it. But um, he was programming the sound, and so he did find it. And so he recorded an audio of him saying, to win the game, you must kill me, John Romero. And uh, he reversed it to make it sound demonic and stuff. So if That's you go awesome. into there and you start shooting at the demon head, it starts saying this demonic thing. It's really John <laughs> Romero. And then if you can no-clip and like get behind the demon head, you see this pixelated picture of John Romero behind there. And That's stuff. awesome. So, and that was the kind of environment they had in. Like It was a lot of people like playing jokes on each other yeah. and having some fun with it and stuff. and shit easter eggs before and shit got there. so serious that's the thing yeah you know as all things do it got bigger and with that there became you know a little strict rules and a little bit more uh, more money on the table and a little bit more uh, you know as things got bigger arguments got bigger so the two johns had some big differences carmike was a coder's coder he liked it quiet he preferred to stay in and work. And Romero, he was he was very showy. He He's liked a party guy. Yeah, he liked doing magazine interviews and photo shoots. Cocaine and, and bitches. <laughs> 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 uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he liked buying fast cars, and he, he was he wanted to live more like a celebrity, like you know. And I agree, with this to to a, a very large extent, I think Romero took a little too far. But like, Romero was like, I, I am on the cutting edge of the emerging entertainment industry. Like I am as much of a rock star as the man who just blew his head off, Kirk Cobain, as you know, the directors making Titan, you know, whatever movies are making right now. You know what I mean? Like he, I mean, he was like, he was a, if if you were into video games in the 80s, you knew who John Romero was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this difference in you know persona really started to drive a wedge between Carmike and Romero. Because Carmike claimed that Romero was too distracted and he wasn't working as hard as everyone else. Romero's directorial debut was on Quake, though. So um, they let Romero direct Quake. And this was really the the nail in the coffin between Romero's relationship with Id and Carmike. Because Quake was the first truly 3D game that they had worked on. This was a big project for them. And obviously with this brand new technology, Romero saw this as an opportunity to like really push game design and really get right. interested in game design. And Carmike wanted to push the technology as far as they could go. And those two things a lot of times came to a head because Romero wanted to do experimental things with the design of it. But then that meant there wasn't as much time to push the tech. Carmike wanted to push the tech, and that meant there wasn't as much time for design. But before I get into that, I just wanted to share this one fun fact because I wasn't sure where to put it. John Carmike loved Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. And they loved Doom. Oh, shit. So uh, apparently Nine Inch Nails uh, would play uh, Doom Deathmatch on their tour bus. Oh wow. And okay. so they cross paths at one point. The nine inch nail guys, you know, obviously knew who made the game and you know the, the Carmike loved nine inch nails and so they worked together to do the music and sound effects for Quake. All of the music in Quake was done by Nine Inch Nails. No way. Yep. And all of the screams are Trent Rasner. Oh my so god. So like all, I didn't know that. all the audio in there, like all the, the the enemies like screaming or the dying sounds, it's all Trent Rasner so just rad. doing screams. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. yeah. So That's rad, awesome. dude. And it's awesome. a really cool soundtrack, because it's like, they don't, they kind of do metal orchestra. Yeah. Like, it's its not yeah. just, like, rock songs. Like, they're making kind of, like, orchestral tracks of guitars. It's right. really fucking cool the
2: way they did this it. This is, and that makes so much, this all makes so much <laughs> sense to me. The dichotomy, mm-hmm. the, here, uh, yeah. honestly, <laughs> the dichotomy of the two Johns here is, honestly, the dichotomy of the two Johns should be the name of this episode. Um, <laughs> it the honestly.
0: dichotomy of Johns. <laughs> <laughs> They sound like Wozniak and Jobs. Yes,
2: it does. It really does. And this is why this is repeated throughout history. Two guys make something. One of them wants to take it further than the other one. The other one wants to keep the integrity of the thing. Mm -hmm. And this happens so much. And uh, uh, uh honestly, unfortunately, but honestly, usually the guy who wants to take it further does, and the guy who wants to keep it as like the integrity of the art mm-hmm. usually winds up uh, blowing his head off with a shotgun. <laughs> and this is kind of the dichotomy of the two Johns here is very reminiscent of that as well. John Carmack wanted to take it on the road. John Romero wanted to keep it at the house mm-hmm. and um, keep the integrity here. And now John Carmack is going to be the king of the metaverse, mm-hmm, the yeah. president of Meta, mm-hmm. and we're going to all worship yeah. John Carmack. Yeah, and it- John Romero, I think, died with Kurt Cobain. <laughs> you know, um, we'll get
1: to where John Romero's at right now, but uh, it's not. It's not heading up the metaverse. right <laughs> Well, we'll get, we'll get into the division yeah. that was wedged between uh, between John and uh, and it and the other John, um, but. Uh, this is also a fun fact. Again, I just didn't know where to put this. John Romero is credited of, co- of coining the terminology deathmatch. Really? Yeah, he came up with that term. It was between him and Junk Harmack. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like, whoever makes it out of this room.
1: And while Quake was a success, the higher-ups accused him Romero, that is, of not being as focused as he could be. Wasting the team's time in the process by laying them in circles and he was also helping Raven Software a lot with Hexen, and they're like, "You're supposed to be the director of Quake. Why are you on the phone with Raven Software for four hours talking about Hexen? We're not, we're not making Hexen. What are you doing over there?" Because they started at this point, it's a bigger company, and there's there's other higher ups and stuff like that. And here's the thing: this is where we start getting into the, the question of the question of John Romero. Is there is no doubt that. You know, he deserves his flowers as far as being a pioneer and an innovator in the game space. But the question arises of, was he ever actually a good director? Right. Because it is basically like, yeah, the game worked. But a lot of that was because Carmike was pushing some, a lot of this direction. You seem to kind of be leading the whole team in circles as far as design stuff goes. And uh, this was a problem John would continue to have throughout his career, and so I do wonder if, like you know, he just wasn't cut out for it to be a to be a director.
2: Well, and it's interesting. I'm reading here too. John Romero was also one of the leading guys on uh mods modding Mm -hmm. games here he created files for players to create their own mods they were known as wad Mm w-a-d known as like where's all the data (laughs) w-a-d files and he kind of left that open for modders so he was also leaving it i think john romero had the right vision here i really do i think he had this vision for like video games as a fun community thing and even left it open for players to mod, which even to this day mm-hmm. is such a highly contended subject yeah. here. Like, should we let people mod our yeah. games? And see, you know? I,
1: I actually don't like mods, I typically. Mods. Um, yeah. Because I, I think it, it infringes on the director's vision. Mm-hmm. That's not the way the game was intended you to be You feel play. that way about
2: films, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I, I really do like to respect the creator's intent in a lot of spaces. But, you know, it, it, while... No one can dispute Romero's impact on the game industry. Whether or not he was cut out to be a game director, I, I think is up for question. I'll let you guys rule on that by the time we get to the end of this. How but, many
0: units did he move?
1: Boom. Well, so Quake was a big success, but uh, Romero didn't have a great time making Quake. He said the higher-ups were pressuring him to just ship it, and he felt like he was... See, that's the thing. Like They, they tell two different stories. It says... Romero's wasting time. He's moving in circles. We need him to focus. We need him to get off the phone with Raven. Like, we need him to We need him to just focus up and get this game finished. We're, we're burning money here. And mm. Romero said that the higher-ups were pressuring him to just ship it, and he felt like they were stifling his creative vision. He thought that they were pressuring him to get it done at the expense of quality game design. Right. Both parties kind of felt like it was good to go their separate ways before their relationship was ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, he started his escape plan. He, he said that um, he thought it was his time for him to go. It thought it was time for him to go. And they left on good terms. S- stayed friends with all those guys. You know, He didn't get forced out, but both of them were just like, this, the, this company is moving in a different direction than the way I want it to go. And I can feel the direction of the wind. And so right. I'm just going to go and I'm going to do my own thing. I got a big enough name. I'm not going to be you know it's not going to be hard for me to get some some seed funding together for a new company and so that's exactly what he did he went on he started Ion Storm Ion Storm so now we're going to talk a little bit about Ion Storm so that was the background that was the gotcha. setup oh, to, yeah. to preface where this man is at this time we have it. one of the rock stars of video games is a free agent Nice. And he is going all around Dallas, Texas, seeing who will give him money. And the answer is, a lot of people would give him a lot of money, in fact. So, Ion Storm was founded November 15th, 1996, only two years after Kirk Cobain blew his brains out.
2: <laughs> Rest in peace, Kirk. <laughs>
1: Kurt. They announced Daikatana at E3 in 1997. So a year after the company was founded, they announced it. And the founders of Ion Storm was John Romero, Tom Hall, who I said that he would become a big character later on in the story. Uh, if you remember, he worked with uh, the two Johns back company they worked at before they started Ed. Right, uh, it's dude named Todd Porter uh, and Jerry O'Flattery. Jerry O'Flattery. <laughs> Tom Hall and Todd Porter are about to have a, a mini episode of Fitness episode that we're going to get to. But it's really important about how this whole thing shook down. Basically, nothing an eye on went as planned. Uh Jerry O'Flattery, he's around, but he's we'll talk about him the least. Yeah. Yeah. So the slogan was Design is Law. At id, the technology led to design. At Ionstorm, the other way around, the design would come first, and the technology would be made to supplement the design ideas. I dig that. Which yeah, I love that. I love that I I am I'm, I'm a big fan of let the design <clears throat> design's more important than the tech
2: pushing it, yeah. you know? It's like when you're writing a script for a film, mm-hmm. don't worry about the budget. Just write the thing you want. Mm-hmm. And we'll figure yeah. it out later. Yeah. And how right, Dev? dare you? <laughs> yeah. right, Dev? No. no, that is the complete opposite <laughs> of what I would
0: say. Yeah, I, know, I said that because Dev, <laughs> Dev and I have uh,
2: worked on stuff together where I wrote scripts, <laughs> and uh, Dev told me uh, we might need to save that <laughs> for a later date when we have a little bit more money. Well, the problem with this one, I mean, I the problem is. The problem wasn't really
1: money. They had plenty of money, <laughs> but the thing was, it was like when in, at id, they wanted to push cutting edge technology and then they were like, we we just built this cool thing, figure out a way to use it. Right. Where he wanted to figure out what he wanted to do first yeah. and then figure out what technology would make sense for that instead of having to shoehorn gimmicky ideas in just because the tech is there.
2: The dichotomy of the two Johns.
1: Dichotomy of the Johns. Yep. So the original idea was for Hall, Porter, and Romero to each design their own game. Well, oh fluttery. Would oversee the art team, assisting all three other teams. So they are forming Ion Storm, and immediately out the gate, they're like, "We want to design three games at one time." And it was this was ambitious, but uh, Mike Wilson, who was previously ID's head of marketing, was hired as a CEO to handle the day-to-day business operations, and he said. Publishers were lining up to throw money in, at game design. Uh, you could write up a game design on a cocktail napkin, and people would be like, "Here's millions and millions of dollars." Oh,
2: what a time! If
1: you were part of the Dallas Mafia, you, oh. could, you, you could get a two to three million dollar deal, no problem. What's two to three million dollars in 1996? The
2: inflation got here later. Right. 1996, two to three million would be about six to seven million.
1: Six seven million. So yeah. you know, if you were if you were these guys, if you were what they called the Dallas Mafia, some of the legendary game designers that were happened, just happened to live in Dallas and work in Dallas at the time. Uh, hedge funds, tech startups, all that stuff they were just they were lining up to throw money at you. Before doom, developers would usually get a single digit royalty percentage from their publishers. After quake, Wilson struck a deal for 40% of the royalties. Which act? Um, Damn. Yeah. So that developers were used to getting like eight yeah, percent of the royalties at the most, and then after Doom, Wilson struck a deal for forty percent for Quake's first level Good pack. Lord, how
2: did he do that? Because they didn't know about video games.
1: Well, no, it's because Doom was so successful. Yeah, Doom was a, a, such a gangbuster success that when they were pitching Quake to Activision. Activision agreed to give them 40% of the royalties good lord it, um, Wilson described it as the wild
2: west yeah it definitely was
1: and Romero and Hall started talking to publishers at EDOS and uh, EDOS had the cash to fund several games at once so it was perfect EDOS was like we really want to expand our business you came out of id you made doom you made quake you know a lot of uh, everyone in this company is an industry veteran you want to, des- you want to develop three games at one time here's, here's money for three games at one time and so they negotiated $3 million for each of the three games, plus 45% of the royalties. Jesus. So, like, they, this, they got a good deal. Yeah. And now, Wilson, who is the CEO, he wanted to knock these games out and use that revenue to transition Ion Storm into becoming its own publisher. Yeah. So, the deal that they had with EDOS was just for these three games. They weren't owned by EDOS or anything like that. And Uh, Wilson was like, the real money is in publishing. Like, if we could become a publisher and we can make royalties off of other developers making games, like, then we could really grow into a powerhouse in the industry. So let's take the money from these first three games. We're going to, we got a, I negotiated us a great deal. We're going to get 45% of our royalties. And we have $3 million for each of these three games. Like, that's a bunch of money. We can easily become our own publisher after that. However, not everyone on the team shared Wilson's ambition to become a publisher. Okay. And during the holiday break, uh, Romero and the others uh, signed their own deal with EDOS without okay. Wilson's approval wow. whatsoever. So this starts a little bit of a power struggle because Wilson was hired as a CEO, but he wasn't one of the founders. Okay. So he didn't own the company. He was the CEO, and they went over his head a lot. They basically treated him as like a, like an honorary CEO. He would advocate for things, but at the end they, day, Romero and those guys, they just did whatever the hell they wanted anyway. And, you know, Wilson was a business guy. These guys weren't. So, you know, it, it, it led to a lot of arguments of like, well, I think we should do this. And then the other guys were like, well, we don't want to do that. And he's like, yeah, but you guys don't know business. You guys know game design. And right. they're like, yeah, but it's our company. So we're going to do what we want. So over the break, <laughs> the deal that they signed without Wilson's approval was now for six games. Wow. So, uh, not to worry, though, they would use the extra money that uh, IDOS was going to give them for that six-game deal to open a second studio in Austin and have that team work on the three other games. So, Ion Storm is a brand-new studio. They have never published a game, and now they have this contract with Eidos for six games. How many? And they're how, opening up a second studio before their first studio has made anything. Nice. To make the other three games. That's awesome. <laughs> so, wow. Um, good for them, but.
2: I, If I was Romero, I'd be like,
1: "Did I get in over my head?" Absolutely, especially too big of a jump, especially
2: for a man who likes to take his time a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and this is where we go back to the dichotomy here. You know, it's like uh, again, it's that artist, it's that, it's that author of the book who uh, came out with really good stuff, and now you want him to churn out uh, twelve books in a year. Mm -hmm. You know, and can you ask this man to do this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. John said
1: not to worry. After long development times that uh, caused Quake to take three years, that would not be an issue at Ionstorm. Right. Because instead of building their own engine, they would simply license the existing engine from IdTech, which means the studio wouldn't have to waste time building an engine, so he could focus on design. We don't have to do all the like techie stuff that Carmack wanted to do. We don't have to build new technology. We'll use existing technology, and we'll like let design focus on these games and we'll crank these games out and we're going to we're going to get through these games in no time. We're going to be a fucking game making machine over here. No worries whatsoever. Nothing will go wrong in this plan. Trust me. Never. So oh, wow. <laughs> Flush with more cash than they anyone in the right mind should have given this man, he rented out a twenty-two thousand square foot penthouse <laughs> studio yeah. in Dallas. It was yes. in the Dallas Chase Tower. Like you do. This office was a multi-million dollar office space. This
2: is like Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> with video games. <laughs> you kind of, yeah. yeah. This is. Was, I bet. How much cocaine was flying? Does it say in the articles how much so, cocaine was flying around? So
1: here's the thing: there were rumors that. At, there, yeah, were just, there were just there were there were just drug orgies happening yeah. at that penthouse tower. Absolutely, everyone denies them. That's why one of the Johns wasn't getting a lot of work done. <laughs> every single person denies it. Oh, every single p- it. we'll get into it, but every single person said those were all rumors. None of that was happening. Yeah, yeah.
2: Strad Oakmont <laughs> did too.
1: <laughs> I feel like someone would have broken it at some point, but we'll we'll get into that because I actually do have a whole paragraph <laughs> about that part. But to get to the so. I don't I, I tried to look up the actual history of this building and I, I couldn't find specifics, but the way it sounded was the penthouse was an added addition to the tower. So right. they built this twenty-two thousand square foot penthouse studio and originally it was going to be for these oil executives that wanted like 000. the twenty-two thousand square foot penthouse studio. Dallas
0: o- oil executive. Originally, Ooh. it was
1: going to be it was going to be for these oil executives who just want a new fancy penthouse tower. Right.
0: So it was the way for the Bush's extended
1: family. <laughs> so the way that worked is the way the offices were designed <laughs> is we had to change elevators on what used to be the top floor. So you took gotcha. the elevator up to what used to be the top floor studio to get on a different elevator to take that to the penthouse, and that was the floor where these stuff, stuffy oil executives worked. Damn. And John Romero, stuffed with all this fucking money, rented this right out from under them. That's amazing. Like, so he, I think he just outbid these guys for the studio. And so the, the oil guys... Wants, can't, hate- <laughs> can't get fooled again. Can't get fooled again. The oil guys hated them. They said it was a bunch of stuffy oil executives who had to sit there and watch these young, long-haired nerd kids pull up in their Ferraris and go up to the penthouse offices, which the oil guys wanted, but the game guys
2: somehow bought from under them. This still exists to this day. (laughs) Can I tell you the quickest story ever? I will not linger on this for long. Please. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I worked in video game marketing forever. That's how I met Drake in the Mm. first place, as we were working for a video game marketing agency and we were tucked away in a uh, office in the building that shared space with electronic arts mm-hmm. we worked in the electronic arts building in Playa Vista and uh, we worked in a... It was a contracted company that was contracted to do the trailers for Electronic Arts. And so we were put on the second floor of this building. And on the fourth floor was EA. Like, mm-hmm. big, big EA. Uh, and they used to own the whole building. They don't anymore. They downsize because they don't need it all anymore. Mm-hmm. It's all gone to digital shit. Anyway, we worked on the second floor in this, like, skeleton office basically that was like the remnants of a uh, ea times back in the day <laughs> and across the hall they had uh rented space office space to an architect firm do you remember, <laughs> yeah, remember them? that yeah i remember the architect guys so yeah. like there would be times where like we were just taking a lunch break or a piss break or whatever we were doing and we would all the droves of nerds and people <laughs> in hoodies and like smelling mm-hmm. like weed we were all in the hall waiting to take the elevator to go wherever we were going and we were in front of the doors of an architect firm <laughs> like they would come out in, in suits, suits and, and be like and what they, who
1: is <laughs> who are who are all these people why is there a field trip of high schoolers here <laughs> uh when do can they go back uh, again man Those the dichotomy
0: architecture." All those architecture people were probably just like, man, they those have such a cool life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're, They're envious. Suckers. That's the
1: thing. It's all the oil execs. Exactly. Yeah. why do we wear suits to the office every day? This kid with long hair and a Metallica short pulled up in a fucking Ferrari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and took we're... our elevator up to our studio. And we were the same way. We were making <laughs> yeah. a lot of money in yeah. that office that mm-hmm. we were working
2: out of, looking yeah. like a bunch of fucking like strung out nerds. Yeah. And we were probably making as much as some of those architects were across yeah. the hall. You know. Yeah. It was it was,
1: it was, it was a prosperous time. So the office was actually completed in 1998 and had never before been used and was designed specifically for Ion Storm. So they got in early enough where they could like add some specifications for what they wanted. This place featured a theater an arcade, a dormitory, and shower room. Amazing. Quote, nobody used the shower. Yeah, yeah,
2: right. They didn't. But
1: sometimes... They we, did. But sometimes we would bring in laser discs to watch movies, said Jake Hughes. Yeah, I
0: was going to say, not for showering.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: No, they, they used them. It just wasn't for showering. We would get food delivered, and sometimes we would stay late and just hang out and play deathmatch. So this was like a clubhouse. There was a dormitory there, there was a shower, there was a theater, an arcade. Like people would come in and to work, and then they would stay late to play and sleep over and stuff like that. It was like it was like a clubhouse at the top of this giant fucking tower in Dallas. Sounds <laughs>
0: <That's> like a frat house. It's
1: awesome. Video games. And actually, yeah. that, some people described it like that. And yeah. um,
0: in that actually, what that was rituals. Do you think they had? Oh wait, the, what? So what What re- weird rituals do you think they had? <laughs>
2: oh. They so had to, like,
0: chug a bunch of booze while playing a game and, you know, walking on hot coals or something?
2: See, yeah, I'm telling is, you, ugh. this all happened at the A offices as well. <laughs> hey, we did a bunch of this shit as well.
1: Well, so uh, John Romero actually said that um, he really liked the culture of the early id days, and he wanted to recreate that. He wanted a space where people felt like it was just people hanging out and also they made games. And we'll get into a little bit of that in, in, in the... Because there were some pros and cons to that, because this wasn't 10 guys in a cabin in Louisiana. This was hundreds of people in an office, and it doesn't exactly work the same way, John, but we'll get into that in a sec. I love Uh, John. Because um, this office also featured massive skylights that streamed onto the computer monitors. So... John wanted this giant, like, windows that he could look out of and skylights and all this natural light. Yeah. But it's like, it caught so much glare yeah. on the computer screens that the coders had to set up black curtains over their cubicles and basically make their cubicles into caves so they could see what the <laughs> fuck they it. were doing. they're the ones
0: who started that <laughs> shit. <laughs> it's like... John! This sounds like an office run by John Ralphio. <laughs> John, they, God, they can't see
1: the screens. Why'd you put skylights in this
2: thing? You designed the studio, John! I told you about the company that I worked for when yeah. we were on the penthouse. We were on a 20th story penthouse of a fucking Wilshire building making video game trailers. And the, the light that would come through for nine hours a day was fucking like your pupils would fall out of your head. It's and you're what? trying to make a fucking video game trailer. Ridiculous. Yeah. So Ionstorm was frequently
1: cited as being the industry's first rock star developer. Yeah. And this created rumors of sex, drugs, and other rock imagery, and apparently. This was all rumors. Everyone who worked there said that was questioned about it said that none of that stuff ever happened. It was more like a dorm where after work, people would play Quake and other multiplayer yeah, well, games. Well, of course you don't say that shit. <laughs> you would think after all these years, someone would have cracked like told the real story.
0: I'm, I have, I, Depends I, on yeah. how good those fucking parties were. Yeah, very true. Very
1: true. <laughs> Um, I don't know. These guys are also kind of, of like of nerdy dudes too. Like no, I don't know. You don't, but
0: the nerds <laughs> are even more freaks. Exactly.
2: <laughs> and the nerdy dudes, the nerdy people who work together, <laughs> are the freakiest. It's kind of yeah. like being in Mississippi at a family reunion. <laughs> Everybody's just horny. You know what I mean? <laughs> family
0: yeah yeah i mean Dungeons i'm sure and dragons is just a incestuous role-playing game. i'm sure there was
1: i'm sure there was a hooker or two that made their way up to the old dallas not only a hooker
2: <laughs> but people working there
1: well it was mostly men. well i mean also uh, you know. Uh,
2: now we're getting down to it
1: <laughs> that's why i never talked about it <laughs> But uh, there were weird stories, though. Um, Late night game sessions. um, Weird
3: stories.
1: (laughs) There were, quote, weird stories. Late night game sessions came with the usual swearing and smack talk, but Richard Gruberts, one of the writers, had this to say. I remember one day sitting on the floor of the hallway outside my office trying to get some writing done. Sometimes a change of scenery helps with the writer's block, and nearby to my left, some engineers are wrestling on the floor. Yeah.
3: (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> and to my right a bo- my boss was drawing a picture on the whiteboard of himself uh, sodomizing a religious figure. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. See, no, yeah. you don't understand. You don't understand. Like, I, I know that they will they will deny it, and that is what they're supposed to do, but these offices go... These offices devolve into uh, Lord of the Flies. If you put people... I... Drake, you and I have been in an office yeah. working on video game-related material for yeah. months at a time, yeah. and when you're on the 13th hour... Of the uh, 56th week of Mm -hmm. some project looking at the same fucking computer screen, looking at the same fucking content on the computer screen for the 1,000th hour straight. People go crazy. I'm telling you, offices... Yeah. These offices devolve into and this isn't mm-hmm. especially
1: at night it feels like you're like a, a, like it feels like you're not supposed to be there. There's it's no like rules. A sleepover There's yeah. nothing that exists yeah.
2: outside the office right. anymore. Yeah. And you can't access it anyway. Yeah. Whatever exists outside of you the office. You need a key card it, it, to get in, bitch. You need a key card <laughs> to get in here. We're the only ones left the architects have left mm-hmm. and we own the building now mm-hmm. and it it gets into very seriously debaucherous territory yeah. sometimes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely stuff people aren't talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. I mean, wrestling on the floor. What were they really doing on that floor? They were fucking. <laughs> and uh, his boss was drawing a picture of him sodomizing a religious yeah, figure. Yeah, 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 It's yeah. uh, a real horny energy right there. Yeah. Uh, he said, I remember drinking at booze that...
0: And <laughs> booze and cocaine. Booze and cocaine.
1: Well, he said, I remember drinking at that moment and thinking, man, I work in a weird, weird, wonderful place. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there had to be cocaine in the studio, because there was a lot of cocaine in video games in the 80s, because... People had to code so fast. Exactly, the, the, the demand was so high that the only way people could like fucking type the keys fast enough was yeah. if they were railing lines of blow. Yes, we'll talk about that There's in the in the Atari of episode. But there are
0: similarities between Hollywood and the video game world. Absolutely. I mean, not I mean... In the technology aspect, but in the kind of like the structure of your life, where yeah. you gotta work like these long hours and a given yeah. of time on a single project. And it's followed by, like, excessive release inventing Mm -hmm. of, like, oh, we're going to work hard and then party hard. Yeah. And
2: you get to a point where whatever you're doing, you get so used to – if you're a year into something, you get so used to doing it that it becomes easy and it becomes second nature. And so Mm -hmm. you were bored uh, the fourth week in. You were bored but now you're bored to the point where you don't even have to focus on what you're doing at all anymore. You can literally do this while your eyes are closed. Yeah. So what the fuck else are you going to do with your brain (laughs) but get as wasted and high as possible and try to make the most, like... Yeah, weird, I mean, debaucherous all shit. All
1: entertainment's the same, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like It's like all entertainment's the same thing. So like if, it's, if it exists in music, it exists in films, it exists in games. Yeah, but, um, That's why Kirkman you know, blew his brains out. Because <laughs> he was about one too many Ion Storm parties. <laughs> no, he was dead before Ion Storm was a thing. But um, <laughs> Romero said he wanted to bring this frat house-style environment to Ion Storm from the mm. early days of AID, where the founders lived together in a lake house while making computer games, or making Commander Keen. He said, "We wanted the environment to be fun because we believe that if you're not having fun making a game, it's going to show in the final product." Hughes- and everybody
2: who was married was like, "Yeah, that sounds great, John. Cool." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hughes said he loved every minute of Ion Storm.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the problem was though like if you run a studio of 200 people like this it's not the same thing as a cabin of your buddy it's yeah. like shit it's you shit get to be the, a boss. you can fuck around when you're like yeah if it's a team of 10 people Everyone is can manage themselves. Yeah. Once you get to that many people, like two hundred. I think it was two hundred. You're I running have, a company. You can't expect everyone to micromanage themselves at a company that big. Regardless, <laughs> the media loved putting the rock star label on Ion Storm, and John yeah. was exactly the face they wanted. He drove a big yellow Hummer one day and a Ferrari the other day. That's amazing. And he lived in a big mansion in North Dallas. Amazing. So he was the image that the media wanted to be like, the
2: the first rock star game designer is here. Dude, and it... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, He
0: sounds like an early Mark Cuban.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's an early Mark Cuban. He's early cryptocurrency. He's early... He's a crypto boy. Yeah, he's a total crypto boy. This is a crypto boy. This is Notch before Notch. Like, Notch Damn. made Minecraft and sold it for $4 billion, but this guy mm-hmm. was getting rich before anybody yeah. in video games. And it all started with publishing his own shit on the Apple II catalog <laughs> magazine. <laughs> yeah. Like, this guy is a rock star. This yeah. is the form of rock star. This is the first, this is one of the first tech mm-hmm. rock stars. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and John, and
1: the, John Mayer's image and the rock star image of Ion Storm extended to the marketing. <laughs> they hired a marketing guy to generate more hype for the game, which seemed unnecessary. This was already like the yeah. most hyped game possible. And they're yeah. like, but the problem was, and we'll get into the actual development problems. The game was getting delayed constantly. And so they didn't have any actual gameplay to show the public. Uh, yes. So they had to cu- they had to hire a marketing guy who like could make marketing for the game and keep up the hype without actually showing the game. Right. And so he Did just get
0: whoever faked the moon landing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that might have been that might have gone over better. The ad was from a Dallas marketing agency that belonged to the Richards Group. And since, again, there wasn't much to show in the first two years because they scrapped the entire game to change engines. We'll get into that. Um, They had to do something else to keep up this hype. And so the ad that this genius fucking marketer came up with was just like it was a red screen it was like a red page a full page print ad in a magazine it was like this red like scratched up wall and it just said John Romero's about to make you his bitch
2: wow and
1: at the bottom
2: <laughs> yes daddy <laughs> go ahead. Said, John Romero's
1: about to make you his bitch on a red background and at the bottom it said the words suck it down
2: Ooh, okay John <laughs> I'll buy any video game you
0: <laughs> want. <laughs> So and, did they just have, like, the Scarface soundtrack playing in the office the entire yes. time? Yes, and if you tell...
2: the limit. Absolutely. And if you tell me that cocaine was not involved in this, yeah. I will call major bullshit. I think they had a fucking cocaine room set up in their 6,000-square-foot oh, office. 22,000. The
0: marketing 000. guy oh got a contact high just from taking a gig. <laughs> the gig.
2: Suck it down! Guy was is their cocaine dealer. Who thought suck it down? Suck it down. <laughs>
0: suck it down. This...
2: I wish video games would go back to this. The well, the dichotomy of the jobs—it didn't go well for them. And to twenty-two thousand square foot office. And to be fair, they're like,
0: "Hey guys, it's a double entendre. It's a joke that means two things." You know,
2: <laughs> yeah, it means suck our dicks and suck our dicks. That's the double entendre. And, and, you
0: know, suck the powder up your nose. You know what? I mean,
2: I mean suck the powder off my dick. Oh, my there God. Go. That's right.
1: So, <laughs> to be fair, John didn't think the idea was a great idea at the time. What's John? <laughs> Carmack's not involved yeah, yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> Car- Carmack-, <laughs> Carmack knew it was a bad idea. John's out. John Carmack is done.
0: <laughs> Carmack- nah, Carmack's still in Cormac's- John Rafio, he's running things now.
1: <laughs> John Carmack's at it. From here on out, if I'm saying John, assume I'm talking about John Romero.
2: Okay, because that sounds like a real John Carmack thing to say that John Romero said. <laughs> will- John Romero sounds like the type of guy who would openly embrace sucking it down, <laughs> but if <laughs> John Carmack was a, a poo-pooer.
1: <laughs> dude, I'm laughing so hard, my back hurts. I don't know why. I no, not this is physically possible. Oh,
0: it hurts to breathe, dude. <laughs> There <laughs> well, you know, there's, I need to bring, there's another John that made a, a groundbreaking project with the word dying.
2: John McClane. John McClane. They're dying hard here in this twenty thousand square foot office. There's no doubt about it.
0: I mean, the name of the game is big sword. I mean, could you make any more reference to genitalia when you're like, suck it down, suck it down. Jesus Christ.
2: <laughs> Suck it
1: down, dude. <laughs> this genius print ad was come up came up with a dude named Wilson and uh, he thought the ad was hilarious and captured the in your face attitude of the company. Wilson said, I remember very clearly presenting that to John in his Cubicle. He also thought it was hilarious, and I was like, fuck yes, dude. <laughs> this is his quote and then
0: this is such a frat
1: and then he sort of started to think twice about it like an hour later he was like i don't know man and i think my words to him and i think my words to him were john don't be a pussy and that was it he signed off on it i love these guys (laughs) i love these guys but uh uh, wilson was wrong and that was a turning point for the public media perception um no one got the joke Tom Hall says we should have just shut up and made awesome games and not worried about the optics of or like trying to like push marketing. So John was like, "I don't know if this ad's going to go over well, but he greenlit it anyway, so it doesn't matter." He has since apologized for this over the years, saying that it was indeed a bad idea, but the damage had been done and people were already starting to get skeptical. And then this ad came out and uh, it just it came off as too pompous, um, and the sentiment towards the game just went downhill from here. People were like. We haven't seen anything of this game in two years, and the first ad that you put out is asking us to suck your dicks. Like, (laughs) where's the fucking game, John? There was another problem with the marketing, too. Uh, Something else that the internet didn't like. And I'm going to quote from a PC Gaming article. One of the stranger stories that emerged from Ion Storm began with the news that John Romero had died. In an interview with Texas Monthly Magazine, a photo was published of Romero lying on a gurney with a fake gunshot hole in his head. The image got put onto the internet without context, triggering outpour of grief. And when the image was outed as fake, people were outraged. Quote, I got phone calls from people on the West Coast in tears going like, what has happened? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's right here. I can hear him laughing from the other room, Hughes said. The mishap was a perfect microcosm of Dallas's problems, how its culture was wrongly used for the marketing, which caused a blowout of damage and the company's public image.
2: He faked a Kurt Cobain?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I I looked so hard to find John Romero commenting on the context of why he did this photo shoot and I couldn't find it so the only thing I can assume is he thought it would just be funny as shit to fake his death in a magazine I have the answer what?
3: cocaine again
1: this guy is a superstar I mean this would be like if Kurt Cobain just came out a week later being like nah fooled oh, you I didn't kidding. blow my fucking fucking head off that
2: is hope i love this guy <laughs> john John Romero.
1: Like, there were probably people who, like, worshipped John Romero who were, like, literally, like, in tears that their yeah. favorite game designer is dead. No, no. You and here, just
2: for the walls. I mean, look, this is like uh, Tom Sawyer style. Oh, like, yeah. if you want to see your own funeral, you know? <laughs> like, what would happen if I killed myself? How would you guys react? <laughs> you know? And then he snorts a big line.
1: This little fiasco backfired between the magazine and the print ad. It, no one was happy with Ion Storm. No one was optimistic about this game anymore. Public sentiment was, like, plummeting. <laughs> you see, uh, <laughs> Iron Storm also had a problem with its the way it was run, because it never established a clear hierarchy of power. John was the figurehead, but he never intended on running the company. He just wanted to make games. Uh, same for the other founders. They had some business acumen, but they were there to work on their games. Wilson was technically the CEO, but he had no real power. Or... Okay, maybe Wilson didn't work from the marketing company. Maybe Wilson was a CEO guy. I'm not sure. Uh, unclear. Gotcha. Uh, this is the first episode. There's some. There's some rough spots. No, I love but it. But yeah. anyway, Wilson was technically the CEO, but he had no real power. He and the COO Bob Wright owned five percent of the company, but combined, uh, the founders owned the rest, meaning that they could override any of their decisions. When uh, they moved into the Chase Towers, because they originally started, um, and they always intend to move to the Chase Towers while well, they were getting finished. you know, they, they worked somewhere else in a temporary studio first, but when they moved into Chase Towers, each of the four partners moved to their own offices, and it became known as the Four Corners of Power. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and it, apparently, there was a constant power struggle between Wilson and Todd Porter. Todd Porter also worked his way up in game dev. He taught himself to code on the Apple II, and he met John Romero back at Origin, that uh, that first company, the first real company that John worked at. Um, dude was charming, funny, good looking, and uh, Will Lecanto Ion Storm's audio director, said this about him: I would say he probably didn't deserve to be on the reputation level of John and Tom, as far as what they'd done. Um, but he jumped right into it, and I think he felt like he was right up there with them. Right. So. Yeah, John and Tom—they were like certified. You know, they—they they were at ID together. They were—they were like proven, the proven heroes in the industry. Todd—he thought he was as good as these guys, but like his his resume did not back that up. He
2: wasn't part of the four
1: corners of the. <laughs> no, apocalypse. he was one of the four corners. No,
2: yeah. yeah, he was one of the four corners, but he wasn't the.
0: So he didn't deserve to be. Yeah, right. he didn't
1: deserve his power. He wasn't the
2: strongest corner.
1: And many people state that Porter's newfound power went straight to his head. Wilson recalls a conversation among the founders where Porter asked them all to wear blazers to work so that the new people would understand who the bosses were nice. and that they would respect so them. So he started this <laughs> shit? <laughs> Once Porter asked one of Romero's level designers to get him a coffee like he was a fucking runner. No. Like this guy's like at his desk working on level design and Porter comes up in a fucking blazer. is like, hey man, get me a coffee. I would have Kurt cobain him. <laughs> so, you know, he was, he was walking around the office ordering on designers like they were office runners or assistants, and Wilson said that he was cruel to people, and he was fucking horrible. Porter was older than the rest of the staff. He was 36, so he was the old man of the office at 36. That's where this and, came from. <laughs> and he was like, I, I'm i I'm one of the four corners of power, motherfuckers, yeah. and you, you kids are gonna respect me Jesus. and do what I want. Porter and Wilson uh, had a big power struggle because, like I said, Porter was older at 36, and then... That made him a decade older than Wilson, and Wilson was supposed to be the CEO. So there's this 26-year-old kid who's like running around being like, hey, can you stop being dicks to people? And he's like, I have earned the right to be dicks to people. Uh, I wear a blazer. Of course. (laughs) And so let's talk about the history of Todd. Todd history, the history of Todd. The
2: history Todd history, the history of Todd. (laughs) So Todd had a company, Distant
1: Thunder, and it was sold to 7th Level, and they made a game called Genome. Sold terribly, flopped in reviews. Then he started Dominion. Todd left to join IonStorm with his partner O'Flattery. He started working on a game called Doppelganger, Wilson said that he wasn't really working on a game so much as he had an idea for a game and it seemed like he didn't actually know how to make games. Instead of working on the design, he hired a bunch of 3D artists to make 3D statues of all the monsters before anything else was done. He was like, I have some ideas for monsters. I want a bunch of 3D artists to make up some 3D models. I want to get them printed and I want monsters all over. It's going to help me figure out the design of this game. All right. And was a I, yeah. so I, I've been trying to figure out why Todd was even invited to be one of the four founders. It had to have just been he had a really good relationship with Romero when he worked at Origin. He was his coke dealer. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's what I. Was because I mean, the guy that. had only made
1: one game before this and it flopped. Yeah, and then he he
0: sounds like a
2: coke he's a coke dealer. dealer. <laughs> his <career sounds laughs> like yeah, him. his whole vibe and career sounds like a coke dealer. well doppelganger wasn't really
1: going anywhere and so todd had the brilliant idea he was like hey well before i left to join Ironstorm, i was working on this other game over at dominion um we could buy that game off of them they want to get out of video games so they're trying to sell out their ip and i already started working on this game so it's half done listen we can buy this game from them for 1.8 million dollars oh it's nothing And it's like like a month's rent
2: on our 60,000 square foot (laughs) office.
1: (laughs) And that's like my
0: second for. Yeah. (laughs) It's like,
1: look, we'll buy this game. Look, 1.8 million. We're supposed to have $3 million budget per game, right? Gotcha. We blow almost $2 million on that to buy the rights to this game. That's almost done. This game can sell up to 500,000 copies. I guarantee it. The game ended up costing over $3 million. You run that through the old inflation calculator. That's $5.1 million. Um, he had brought over a half-finished strategy game from 7th level named Dominion Storm over Gift 3. Uh, I don't know why it was called that. It was the first one in the franchise. Um, and <laughs> don't know why it was a 3 at the end of there. And he said he could have it out the door in three months. It okay. took over a year to finish. It was Ion Storm's first release project coming out, of, uh, coming out in June 1998. Uh, it bombed into reviews and sold less than twenty four thousand copies. That was Todd Porter's contribution. He was like, "I'm gonna bring over this game and then I'm just, just blow all the fucking money on it. I'm yeah. Just blow all the money on it. Yeah. And, whatever, uh, and
0: you want to know what the cocaine budget was? <laughs> whatever Todd's salary.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then while I'm doing it, I'm just gonna be a dick to everyone in the fucking office. All you people, Jesus. I'm ten years older than you. I know what I'm talking about. So. Porter was also trying to move in on other aspects of the business. He would go to design meetings for Daikatana, which he was supposed to have nothing to do with. Again, there's three different games being made. Porter's making one. um, Romero's making one. Like, there's no reason for him to go over there. He's showing up in design meetings for Daikatana anyway, trying to, like, make it his game, too. Uh, He tried to start a comic book publishing wing of Ion Storm. Like, just... For no other reason than he thought it would be cool to do. Uh, Edos shut that down immediately. They are like, we gave you so many millions to make video games. You just bombed. You just blew $3 million. What are you doing with this comic book shit? We have some serious concerns about the money we have given Ion Storm.
2: Cocaine. Cocaine.
1: So, during the development of Dominion, uh, he is just burning through money. He's burning through way more money than he thought he was going to. Production's taking longer. And so, he's hiring like a lot of producers and other founders felt like he was like starting to like suck up their resources again. Cause each game is supposed to have the same amount of money, but he, he burnt through his 3 million. So now he's right. still spending company money. to like buy, to like hire more people and stuff. And the other founders started to be like, what, why oh, is all yeah. the money going to Porter's game? I love game? that.
2: I love that's what <laughs> that's what I love to do is like if somebody by the way just putting that out there for like everybody on the world if you get 4 million dollars to do a project that means, like, $3.9 of that is yours. You know what I mean? And you can do whatever you want with it, to be honest. Um, And they're not going to ask many questions until, like, the IRS comes around. But, like, uh, if you get a $4 million project, you know, Dev, like you know, uh, (laughs) you can just spend most of that on drugs and Lamborghinis. But look, here's the thing.
1: Um, A lot of these negative... A lot of this negative press, a lot of these stories about Porter... We're coming from Wilson. Because him and Wilson did not get along. Wilson! And so I I just want to be fair and balanced here. Wilson was not without his scandals either. He borrowed company money to buy a new car after wrecking his own. Uh, He was also described as an uncompromising business negotiator and could be just as fiery as Porter. So... While he was more liked by the people in the office because, like, he was nicer to them, right. he was pretty yelly, too. Like, they were vocally opposing each other constantly. And Wilson said that the key difference between him and Porter was that while he was also loud and demanded a lot of stuff, uh, the the people liked him because they he had their back. He said, someone's got to fucking call this dude out for being an asshole or this whole company is going to be assholes. Right, yeah. And... Again, to be fair and balanced, uh, PC Gamer uh, contacted Porter about the statements made against him, and he tells a completely different story. He said that um, he liked Mike Fine, Uh, they got along fine. There was never a power struggle. They did disagree about stuff, but at the end of the day, Mike was the CEO and he respected his decisions. He says he doesn't remember making that blazer comment and he would never be intentionally cruel to anyone. He definitely never demanded anyone to get him coffee that wasn't supposed to. (laughs) And he never lost, and he said, did I lose my temper? Sure, but we were working really long hours. I can't say I never yelled at anyone, but I never did in a mean way.
2: Yeah, they always always tend to uh, uh, deny but Everything that happened. So, Just like uh, Blizzard is going through right now. <laughs> well, so, but this, regardless of who's right, yeah. uh,
1: I kind of think Wilson was right, but regardless of who's telling the correct story here, uh, this is causing massive disruptions in a studio that's already not going great. Yeah, Daikatana's got its own problems, so we're going to get into that, but the reason I bring up this whole power struggle between Wilson and Todd is because... It, the death of Ion Storm wasn't all John Romero's fault yeah. there was a lot of moving parts there was a lot of egos like I said they never established a hierarchy there are basically five people all fighting for control of this massive multi-million dollar brand new studio that doesn't have a work culture they don't have any established policies or procedures and there's also these two other products projects that are going through their own drama and stuff and so a lot of people credit R- Fault Romero for you know solely for the reason that all the failures happened but there was a lot of stuff that was basically out of romero's control but what was in their control is one of these guys had to go and in the end wilson was the one that was fired the friction of porter was a contributing factor along with the plans wilson had of transitioning the company to a publisher remember before when he was like we should be a game publisher he never really got off that train and the rest of the founders kind of thought if we keep trying to push this, EDOS is going to get pissed because they're paying us to make these games. We don't want to get out that we're trying to be them in a couple years, you know? Right. And so they just wanted to focus on making the games first and foremost. Wilson claims it was Porter who was pressuring John and Tom, but Porter claims he had nothing to do with the decision to fire Wilson. Right. So That's hilarious. <laughs> John and Tom <laughs> refuse to comment to this day. <laughs> uh, but uh, after this happened, Porter became the CEO. Um, so they're like, well, Wilson's gone and Porter's already been running around yelling at people anyway. So yeah. I guess he's the CEO. He is the most senior guy. I mean, the old man's 36. He's gonna die soon. His retirement's <laughs> coming up. We're 36 all, years we're old. We're all 14 years old. We're yeah. We're gonna this man's perfect for CEO.
2: He was not great at being CEO. <laughs> no, because a 36-year-old person is uh, by the way, still a child. But that's that's also a running yeah. theme within the video game yeah. industry. Is thirty-six years old is the old man. Yeah, exactly. And this is an industry run by people who are considered to be old when they are uh, well before their 40s. And
1: again, I, I could understand if Porter was like a legendary game designer, but he's made two flops, and yeah. he, as far as I know, he doesn't have any real business acumen either. Why make him CEO? But whatever. Cocaine. His, his game was already out and he had nothing better to do, so they were like, you're CEO now, I guess. Cocaine? He was not great at this job. Yeah. Uh, he, For some reason, I couldn't find out why, but he turned down a deal with Compaq <sighs> computers that would have paid Ion. 75 cents for every dollar for every compact computer sold with Dominion already installed good
2: on it. Good lord!
1: And it would have guaranteed Ion Storm a minimum of 1.5 million dollars.
2: 75 So
1: they're basically like that game that flopped, what we'll do is we'll install it on all of our computers and we'll pay you 75 cents to every dollar we make off of compact what? computers sold with Dominion yeah, on it. Yeah, what do we not and, know And uh, for some reason, Porter was like, ah, not a good enough deal, and he turned wow. it down. Wow. So, Porter and O'Flattery, uh, remember O'Flattery was the guy who was running the basically the art department that was helping all the teams. Yeah. But Porter and O'Flattery were friends. They came in together. And so uh 18 months after um, Wilson was fired, they were like, Porter and O'Flattery can go too. We don't we don't need these guys here. We're not we're cleaning house. Anyone who's not working out, we're just gonna get rid of. We're gonna try and trim some of this power struggle. The four corners are now the two corners. The whole Uproar with Porter and Wilson and all of the change in management is credited for one of the reasons why Dina Katana's original dev team quit in mass in a famous walkout. And he was fired wow. right after that happened. Oh so like basically, like he was things were so tumultuous of him as CEO that a large portion of the original development team, Dia Katana, quit and walked out on one day. Damn. And they were like, there was a mass exodus of some of our best talent in the entire studio. You are fired, sir. And was- take O Flattery with you. <laughs> the business issues were not the only problem. Tech issues plagued game development. On top of the game not coming together well, again, the uppers at EDOS had the same thing to say that the uppers at id had to say. That John Romero just didn't seem like he was fully focused on
2: his project. Well yeah. He
1: said they said he was out of the office on press trips a lot, and yeah. they know he was never around before they need to ask him important questions.
2: No, but I understand this guy. I understand this guy. <laughs> I relate to this man. Well, again, you have to give uh, Art time to breathe. You know what I mean?
1: But they, he was the director of the game and they needed him in the office to answer important questions but about the design. You know what?
2: When you get John, you get John. <laughs>
1: well, that was the thing. When he was in the office, he was constantly getting distracted playing deathmatch. Uh, so well, that's different.
2: That's different. So. Okay, that's different. The thing was. when you get to the office, you got to work, John. But. But he not was in the office, you know. He
1: was constantly on press tours, and again, everyone was like, "Every time you s- you just open your mouth, interest in this game drops. That's like, like your Musk. cachet is running out. Can you just stay in the office and answer these basic design questions? Like this thing is a fucking mess." And he's like, "I'm doing another interview," and then we did come to the office. He was playing deathmatch Romero has a side of the story, but All right. no no no. But if Romero you're just coming wanted, to the office, Romero said he much. wanted chill environment. But the problem was that worked of a small team of twenty to thirty people. Ironstorm right. was Big and someone need to actually manage and lead the team.
2: That's- Listen, I don't care how many people are involved now. I'm, I'm going to have the same method. I made a million dollars and I bought this sixty thousand dollar square foot office on what I do. You know what I mean? So if you want me to change what I do, uh, you're going to have to get another John. But this John, this dichotomy is still going to say the same.
1: Well, Romero argues that his excessive trips out of the office was greatly over-exaggerated. He was there most of the time. (laughs) And And that I also believe... <laughs> and then when he was playing deathmatch, he was playing it for testing purposes, exactly. and he had to play.
2: Yeah, I'm on John's side. But
1: regardless, there was a high turnover, and Daikatana had lost its. <laughs> Daikatana lost its lead programmer five times. They went through
2: five lead programmers over ever, the course of this project. Nerds just don't know how work progress flow goes. Workflow, you know the workflow when they send you the diagram. So like when you when you start working for these video game companies they'll send you this fucking bullshit paperwork right on like their workflow and it's all about like when we want you in the office and we, we when we want to see you and this and that but you know what? I'm a creative genius. I'm a, I'm a mind that can't be <laughs> held by your boundaries, my friend. That I work when I want, <laughs> and when I want to work is when I put out the money, baby. 5, 6 p.m. is usually when I put out my best shots. So that's what you're going to get. Well, John kept that energy, and yeah. eight employees
1: left to go join Mike Wilson's new publishing yeah, venture.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Leave. <laughs> leave get out of here. <laughs> John Romero sounds like a modern-day freak, uh,
3: geek show. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and leave. Go ahead and leave.
0: If you don't want to work I on John's schedule, you can...
2: Don't let the door hit.
1: But... In preparation for the E3 1999, a demo had to be prepared, and it had been prepared for months, and then a week before the show, apparently, Romero wanted a bunch of changes, and everyone was like, what the fuck? This stuff has been in place for months. Why are you just asking about this now? Is it because you're out of the office all the time when you are here playing fucking deathmatch? Yeah,
2: that's exactly
1: why. So, the demo for E3 ended up at running at 5 FPS and it oh was a massive disaster for PR. <laughs> that is not good. This was like the That's first so
0: public funny. showing
2: of the game in a long time, and it running at 5 FPS. Okay, look. So this is where I will say... It's
0: like stop motion. That is,
2: That is what I will say. You can be a rock star all you want, uh, just like I have been playing for the past two mm-hmm. hours here. Mm-hmm. But it does come down to a, a point where... Uh, if, if, you don't deliver, if you don't deliver, they're right. It, it's really bad. And they yeah. are right. If you're going to be a rock star and you're going to uh, be a very problematic person to work with, at least put out a good product. Yeah. That's the thing. If you're going to be a genius, well, that's the thing. Make if
1: Daikatana had ended up being good, we would have, you know, John Romero would be laughing in our faces to
2: this right. day. Absolutely. But, but he's dead James now. Cam. He put a, he put a yeah. shotgun in his mouth.
1: <laughs> but Romero <laughs> claims that he was not. Uh, he was not to blame for these last minute changes. Romero claims that he had already left for E3 and someone else asked for these changes without his permission. And I I do apologize because this is where the timeline gets a little blurry. I want to cover the Todd Porter-Wilson drama first. But at this point in time, 1999, Todd Porter is actually still at uh, Ion Storm. And it is very likely that Todd Porter was the one who asked for all those changes a week before E3. Um, and this also coincided with Todd's firing. So it is believed to be a factor as to why they escorted him out the door. And there are rumors that he had to be escorted out by security. Wow. He would not leave the studio willingly. He had That's to be escorted awesome. out by security. EDOS at this point, purchased controlling interest in Ion Storm after this. Uh, they So they they were like, this is enough you guys have burned so much of our money. We're going to buy this company outright so we can have a harder, like a stronger control on the development. And cause this game has to come out. Yeah. This game is massively delayed. Um, and everyone claims that uh, the team spirit was much higher after Todd Porter left and Ion storm uh, like purchased it because there was finally like after Ion storm came in, apparently it was just like order was brought to the studio. Like, it was now clear, like, people were actually being managed, things were getting done, right. things were less confusing, and the last year of development of this game apparently went really smoothly after Ion Storm was like, we need actual management That's in this awesome. office.
2: And this is a $3.5 million budget?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get into exactly how much it cost them. But right. the early internet was a sa- was as savage of a place as it was today. And I found an old archive forum thread uh, that was saved on a Google Groups for some reason. And they're saying that, uh, and even back then, they're talking about the firing of, uh, of Todd Porter um, and being super happy about it. And people are being just as mean as you would expect internet people to be mean. But um, yeah, like even back then, if information is hard to come by... The gaming community at large knew that Todd Porter was ruining Ion Storm. And a lot of people at this point did not like John Romero either. And one of the guys said, I shouldn't have to say who the next one to be fired should be. Hint, he is a Japanese sex symbol, in quotes. So... I was, like, intrigued by the sentence, and so I did a little bit of research. But dear, could you... And, ma- no, supposedly, John Romero. John Romero claims that he is a yep. Japanese sex symbol. Wow. And that he thinks that if that he hair. ever went to Japan, hair. he would be mobbed by Japanese girls, only to be quickly decapitated by a jealous Japanese boyfriend. Okay. I mean, it could <laughs> so, happen. So... Um, again, that's what I you dream it. of that's Talking just
0: through. his dream that's how he wants to die that is the way he wants <laughs> to go he's like guys I don't want to die of old age or a heart attack I want to die as a Japanese sex symbol that gets his head cut
1: <laughs> so, so now we've talked about all the drama around we've talked about all the problems of its development and everything that led up to it potentially being like a a not you know all all the problems behind the scenes oh yeah no this was the this was the Stratton Oakmont but Uh, the problem wasn't just the behind the scenes and this is why I think maybe John Romero's not a great director Was because (laughs) because Daikatana was, I think, fundamentally flawed from a game design perspective. First of all, John Romero wrote a 400 page design document. That's fine. Which is way too long for a GDD, (laughs) especially for a first person shooter. For comparison, Deus Ex, which was an RPG, had a 64 page design document. That's it? That's it. GEDs
2: do not have to be 400 pages unless you're making fucking
1: Skyrim. There's no reason.
2: Some films have Bibles that are 200 pages long. It, uh, but I guess that also is also too long.
1: I, I don't know. Four hundred pages for an FPS too long. I, I, there's yeah. not. There's a lot of ambitious stuff happening in Daikatana. There's. I don't know what this man wrote about for four hundred. But you also pages. said it
2: like spanned travel. There was twenty four levels. And... I mean,
1: but there's twenty four levels. Like I, I don't know. I would levels. love to read what this man wrote for four hundred pages. Yeah. But either way,
2: cocaine, cocaine <laughs> ramblings. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> but anyway, with Quake the first year of development went towards the engine, and to avoid this, John, again, he licensed the Quake engine from id. However, the tech quickly became antiquated, and they wanted to move to id Tech too. John was blown away by the tech, and he thought Daikatana would look and feel outdated when it came out, which is at odds with his design philosophy in the first place. His whole problem his whole problem with working at id was that they're spending too much time boosting this technology that really doesn't matter. What matters is the game design. Let's focus right. on the game design. And then he is in the driver's seat, and the second he sees a shinier, more high tech thing, yeah, he man. says, We're scrapping this and we're doing it again id tech too, which again,
0: you know who else does that? <laughs>
2: Cokeheads, I, I keep thinking that I, the whole time. I'm sorry, but like, like cocaine makes so much sense he, here. You change your mind. Yes, you're
0: manic. You're overriding. Yes, Did the, he stay up really late and clean the office and think of new businesses to start? This too? sounds like classic
2: yeah. coke mania. Him and Porter it were just really let's really go. We should no, start and a comic so, business. And it definitely <laughs> yeah. was happening. It definitely was happening within these offices. Like every, uh, I, uh, I'm with Dev. Yeah, everything that you're saying makes sense on cocaine. I mean, it does. so like. That that's, that's the... Th- Changing
1: engines, again, meant redoing your entire game at this yeah. point in time. Like, you like have to start from whole... scratch. And they've already spent, what, $2 million or some shit? They, they had already been yeah. working on this game for, like, I, I think they've been working... I don't know how long, but they've been working on it for a while. Yeah. And jumping engines, especially back then, everything had to be redone from the ground up. Nothing was usable. Jesus. So, to compound oh this, they're licensing this engine from id. And right. if you remember, whenever a company like Raven wanted to license uh little software in the past and they had questions they called Romero because Romero was happy to help people. Carmack was not great with third party support and he did not want to be bothered with phone calls. When Ravensoft were called, they called Romero. So Romero called Carmack was like, I don't want to be on the phone with you. I love you, John, but I am doing something right now. I'm not helping you with this. I'm creating the metaverse. So so it was really hard for them to get some support implementing the Quake 2 source code at all. Nowadays, when engine upgrades, uh, it's fully forward compatible. So, like if you move from Unreal Engine 4 to Unreal Engine 5, it's it's gonna work really efficiently. But in the past, a new engine version meant you were doing something completely different and especially if 3D graphics rendering. Again, remember, 3D graphic rendering was completely new and it was very complex code base. So even if you had experienced coders, they're looking at this new alien fucking technology from id and they're like, I don't know what the fuck I'm looking at. You yeah. know what I mean? So like, it made it incredibly difficult. And so Iron Storm received the Quake 2 source code in November of 1997, but it took them until March of 1999 to fully implement the source code. Jesus. So they spent most of their time implementing tech instead of working on design, which is exactly what Romero wanted to avoid when he found the studio. But again, he's making all these calls. All right. Iron Storm wasn't the only developer that had these issues, though. Upgrading 3D engines around this time uh, plagued a lot of games. Jedi Knight, Duke Nukem, and Prey were all notorious for this. Prey and Duke Nukem... Uh, had even longer times in Daikatana. We'll talk about Duke, Duke Nukem one of these days. Duke Nukem Forever was in development for 15 years. Oh my God. Now, see, here's the thing though. One company that decided not to play catch up was Valve. They had the source code for Quake 2 and they were like, no, uh, we're good with what we got. We're good with our code. Wow. And they made the right move because you know what game they passed on Quake 2 for? Half-Life. Half-life. Yep they developed Half-Life on their own stuff that was an outdated engine. Like, Qua- or like, Half-Life was not cutting edge as far as, like, tech when it came out, oh. but it was a good game because it looked
2: they... looked like it. It looked... Half-Life was like... Well, here...
1: That's... that's
0: Utah, it was fun. Yeah. Well, that's but a Well, that's the thing,
1: too, though. If you're working on an engine you understand, you can
2: get more out of it than a new engine you
1: yeah. don't understand.
2: And, you know, Valve... I mean, we'll talk about it again in a, in a in a later episode, but Steam... Steam came from valve and uh, I mean, yeah, our whole like a big chunk of our video game platforming on PC comes mm-hmm. from Valve nowadays, yeah you know, all from half life yeah.
1: yeah, oh yeah, and I mean they made they made undisputably the right move, yeah so like I said before, Daikatan mm. itself, it was incredibly ambitious, and had a pretty in depth story which for a person first person shooter was like unheard of, yeah to sum it up uh i 'll quote directly from Wikipedia. Uh, I tried not to quote directly f- in most of this. I wrote my own words, but for the story summary, I was like, ah, fuck it. In feudal Japan, two rival clans are at war. The Mishimas go to the sword master to craft a weapon to end the conflict, the Daikatana. However, they realize that the dark desires the person has gives the Daikatana evil powers. And to avoid this, they throw the sword into a volcano and the war ends. In 1455, a sword master just named Hiro is visited, well, Hiro Mishimoto, is visited by a man named, uh, doctor, doesn't matter, uh, descendant of one of the other clan members, and he's suffering from a plague, he's about to die. He tells Hiro that, uh, hey, um, cool sword over here, and, uh, if you steal it, you can alter history, and, uh, you know, uh, do that. And I don't know he takes a sword. The dude double crosses him, and you go on this whole timey wimey adventure through history of all these twists and turns. And I love that. Apparently, it was a pretty good story. Yeah. You know, like the story itself was was fine, and it had voice acting, which was crazy. And you know, John said he wanted to make something new. He wanted something that was going to push the genre forward. He wanted he wanted he didn't just want to reiterate the FPS over and over again. Like he fought. Quake was a good game, but it was like it was it didn't bring anything new to the table except for 3D. Like it wasn't iterative on the principles of uh, first-person shooting. Like Quake Two was just Quake Two. You know what I mean? He wanted to do something that was like this is a new thing. He wanted 3D melee combat, which was a uh, system that he could never get greenlit for Quake, and he thought it was a key component of the game. The story was important to Romero, and it was one of the things that he fought with Carmack about back at id. Carmack famously said. Story in a game is like story in a porn movie. It's expected to be there, but it's not important. Nice. And it turns out he said this to Tom Hall, who was the narrative designer at Doom. Nice. And so Tom quit shortly after that conversation. Yeah. (laughs) He was like, why the fuck am I making a story if you don't think it
2: matters? Yeah. And, you know,
1: Tom Hall would go on to uh, be one of the uh, main, uh, one of the four corners of power at uh, Ion Storm. Wow. The other Four pro- corners
2: of power
1: so the other problem was the two ai control companions that i mentioned before they were supposed to help you in combat and with puzzles but they could also die and the ai tech back then was just not there so these mm. guys died a lot they constantly got stuck on geometry and if they die it's game over and you have to get to the end of the level with them so if they get stuck on geometry you have to like either push them off or yeah. reset they died. They walked off ledges a lot. Like the AI was a cause of a lot of the frustration of this game. This was the other problem. There was friendly fire, and the AI would constantly stand behind you and try and shoot oh, through you. Damn. So sometimes your your friendly AI would kill you. And then again, if you accidentally hit them and kill them, you also it's also game over. Damn. And to top it all off, many of the weapons had splash damage, and it's really hard not to hurt yourself for the AI. Basically, projectiles would bounce all over the place or have big explosions, and so it was. Only almost impossible to shoot a gun that didn't inadvertently damage someone on your team right the game had really long loading times and there the loading screens were incredibly annoying they had like this awful sound effect and again you had oh, to load shit. all the time but he wanted an rpg elements and he was inspired by chrono trigger and zelda and so like he wanted puzzles and all this crazy shit but again like this was a game full of ideas with none of them polished. Like, he had all these ideas but didn't stop to think about how do you actually implement these in a fun way. Start off the weapon called the Ion Blaster, and the projectile is shot bounce off of walls and hits multiple targets, including yourself. So Damn. the first weapon you get in the game is, like, dangerous to use. In fact, the best way to play the game is once you get the Daikatana, just use melee for the entire game. Yeah. the Which, you know, again... Cool that there was melee combat in a game this early. It wasn't great. (laughs) The puzzle mechanics were kind of random. Most of the games, like if you're doing good game design, you teach the player how to solve puzzles by implementing simple versions of the puzzle and then scaling it up and using things that you learned from the beginning of the game throughout the game. Uh, Apparently, most of the puzzles in this game didn't relate to each other. So each time you had to figure out a puzzle, it was kind of felt like random and like there wasn't a great way to figure out what the logic of the puzzle solving was supposed to be. And like a lot of times it would implement stuff that you would never use again in the game. So it was kind of confusing what you're supposed to learn from each puzzle going into the next one. The answer is nothing. They're all random. The game had multiple...
0: Puzzle looks like it was made by... (laughs) (laughs) It looks like this puzzle was made on cocaine.
1: The game had multiple glitches, crashes, and save corruptions. Um, There were three versions, the PC version. The N64 version had worse graphics, but shorter levels and less levels. Worse frame rate, no voice acting, and the boss fights were cut. However, the AI companions were also cut, so you didn't have to worry about those.
2: Damn.
1: The Game Boy version only came out in Japan, and it was more like an NES Zelda game, and apparently it was actually pretty good, but, you know... Didn't matter over here. Yeah. The N64 version was originally released as a blockbuster exclusive rental. Wow! And by the time it was released physically, like it was universally known that the game was. By
2: the time it was released, like to buy, it was universally known that the game was terrible. So it, it flopped. It, it also flopped. You'd order. You would. You'd go and rent this game alongside uh, The Rock, the game <laughs> that came out, or the yeah. movie that came out back in the day. So I got
1: some information from an old Inside PC gaming video, and it's pretty crazy at the time. Uh, Just the things that they're talking about and how they're discussing the past and going around talking about things. This isn't like super relevant, but I just thought it was worth pointing out because I got a lot of information from this Inside gaming video about like the work culture there and stuff. And they're going around to all these game developers and they're like, this is the lead designer and this is that or the other. Until they get to the one attractive woman in the office <laughs> and they introduce her as follows. Oh my God. Ion Storm's voluptuous game designer and professional gamer, Stevie Case. Uh, I just want to say on behalf of Game History, I'm sorry, Stevie Case. I'm <laughs> <God laughs> sorry oh you're referred to as a professional gamer and as voluptuous instead of like, you know, referred to specifically Jeez. as a game designer. Yeah. Um uh, I it, it, it's not as important in the story. I just that's something I want to mention no, that I, I'm with you. what as far as games have been really progressive as far as inclusion of different, you know, except cultural for backgrounds yeah. except for women. We still have a huge sexism problem in video games. Uh and um Uh, The angling of the camera was also top-down and focused on her boobs the whole time. Wow! So uh, I'm sorry, Stevie. I hope you have a wonderful career now. (laughs) Remember how the game was supposed to cost $3 million? (laughs) Yeah. It ended up costing at least... $25 $25 million. Jesus. Which, if you run that through the old inflation calculator, is $40 million. Oh, $4. my Lord. It was projected to sell 2.5 million units. It had to hit that in order to break even. It only sold 40,000 copies. Yikes. Only 8,000 copies in the first two months. And it only generated $271,000 in revenue. That is a bomb. <laughs> if you run that through the old inflation calculator, they spent forty million. They made half a million back. Yikes! Not even. We're <laughs> closer to four hundred k. But that was that was Katana, and it was also it. There was so if you remember, there was one other game being made, right, by the other guy, the one we didn't really talk about too too much. Um, this one was called Anacrox. Uh, I think I pronounced that right. Uh, It was a sci-fi RPG. It was made by a smaller team. Uh, It had some technical issues, um, but uh, all in all, uh, this one actually ended up being pretty good. Um, It was a smaller team. They stayed out of most of the drama of the rest of the office. They kind of were just like this, you know, the corner of the office that was just keeping their heads down, doing work. And yeah, it was... It nice. was an, it was an impressive game. It was iFire RPG. It was running on a f- f- FPS engine, so it made it super hard to pull off like an RPG. But they made it work, and apparently, it got really good reviews. But it sold just as poorly as the other two games. Yeah, exactly, man. <laughs>
2: uh, try to make video games without cocaine. It's going to sell just as bad. Okay. So, I mean,
1: who knows if that was because the uh, the other two games released by Iron Storm were absolutely trash, and everyone was just like, "I'm not, I'm not falling for this again." I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but two weeks after the launch of AnaCross, EDOS informed Ion uh, Storm Dallas that it was closing their studio, oh. and so the Anacrox team actually stayed without pay to finish a patch for the game because they really wanted to get that patch out. Damn. So they, I wouldn't, <laughs> you know. So so good on them. They stayed without pay to to finish that out, and then. Uh, that is it for Ion Storm Dallas. After Crocs, they were like, we have spent so much money on this. None of the three we're three for three on a loss here. Jeez. Now you might remember. Video games get
2: made.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now you might remember there was another studio, the Austin studio of Ion Storm that was tasked of developing those other three games.
0: Or did they just like get distracted cooking barbecue and drinking? <laughs>
1: no, that is actually the one bright spot out of the story. If this whole fiasco gave us nothing else, it gave us the career of a man named Warren Spector, who will get his own episode one of these days. Warren Spector deserves to know his own episode, and he made a little game called Deus Ex over at the uh, Austin studio. And while that game didn't also didn't hit uh, sales milestones at the time. Uh, it is a beloved RPG and it was, uh, it Warren Spector. I, I think it. I, I got to do more research on him, but I think it launched his career and Warren Spector, like thanks John Romero for like giving him a shot. He awesome. was like, if if it wasn't for John Romero, you know, doing creating Ion Storm, giving me this office in Austin, like Deus Ex wouldn't happen. I wouldn't be Warren Spector. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if nothing else good came out of this, you know, uh, Warren Spector uh, thanks John Romero for this. He and Hall kept trying for years. They started Monkey Stone Games, and they were going to focus on mobile devices and stuff, small mobile games. Like many directors from his era, he turned to Kickstarter to make a similar game to the one of his glory days. But unlike many directors from his era, uh, it failed, and he canceled the Kickstarter four days after he started it. Damn. He started Romero Games with his wife in 2015, and um, he is currently living in Ireland. Uh, he's most released, he most recently released Empire of Sin, also reviewed poorly. And mm-hmm. he is creative working on over 105 games to date in his career, which is a crazy high number um, yeah. for games to have worked on. And I mean, some of those he was just producers on, some of those he was just like consultant on and stuff. He didn't design 105 games himself, but it's still a large number. It and it's
2: like 20 grand a game. I'm you know, like, yeah.
1: It all started from an Apple II project back uh, back when he was a kid. The Apple II um, magazine. And uh, so this is where I'm at with, with John Romero. Like, it's... This man came from humble beginnings, rose to meteoric heights, uh, was one of the first, like, celebrity game directors, game designers in history. He helped create the first-person shooter. He helped develop the foundation of core aspects of video games that we use today. He coined the term deathmatch. He deserves right. his place in history. He deserves his flowers. He deserves the respect from those things. Uh, but I see this a lot, uh, especially in games where these guys just didn't know how to adapt and like evolve over time, you know, like he just couldn't figure it out at some point. And like, he's made a bunch of games. None of them ever were received very well after this. I I think that he was really good at one thing. And then he moved on to something that's just not in his wheelhouse. I think he's probably just not cut out to be a director, especially on a project that big. I think, you know, he is a good designer in some aspects, but to be a lead designer, like where you're like in charge of balancing interesting mechanics of making them fun, but also making sure right. they work and making those hard choices of what features to cut and what features to keep. You know, he just doesn't have that, that insight in him. Um, because that's important too. It's, it's fun to be like, uh, I want all this stuff in this game and like the studio is the one telling me I can't do it. And obviously a lot of times the studios do, um, metal too much, but I think a good designer for a game also knows when it's a good idea but I can't make it work, and it's better to cut it. And yeah. that's a hard decision to make. And I think it's what separates like the good designers from the great designers. Yeah. Um, and so, what do you guys think about John Romero? John
0: Romero sounds like I think he sounds like a cross between Homer Simpson, Sideshow Bob. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, James, what do you think about old John Romero? So John Romero clearly uh, an intrepid artist. If I were to compare him to a musician, uh, he'd be like Kurt Cobain, you know, <laughs> like uh, a man yeah. who created a genre and then uh, killed himself with it uh, and put a gun that's, in his mouth. That's not a bad metaphor. Um, no, not at all. I think it, I, that really is him because the thing is, uh, um, you. It, uh, this is the ultimate curse of a pioneer, right? Mm-hmm. You create a genre... Um, And then the genre catches fire, and the genre starts making money, and that thing that you created becomes a thing that can make everyone money, and it becomes a uh, corporation. And uh, the thing that you created, Mm -hmm. you can no longer control. You create this art, and it starts to become a profitable industry, and then it starts to become a very profitable industry. And it gets away from you. And John Romero in his way, um, he needed time to create art and he needed time to be the guy who he needed to be, but he ran out of time because the I, art I, and the industry got away from and him.
1: And I think I think he let the lifestyle and the image get away from him too. You yeah. know, I, I definitely like the I like the aesthetics. And I, I you know, I one day want to be sort of seen as like a celebrity rock star designer, but like at the end of the day, you also have to he looks like he has a
0: whole room.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: you also have to
1: know when it's time to tur- tur- get, get away from the, the camera lights and go yeah, in and actually do the job and sure. prove that you are the guy that the media says you are. But, um, you know, do you though? Well, I mean, that's why I said. That's why I started with saying, like, this is a story of a man who flew too close to the sun. He let his success get away from him. Uh, you know, at some point he lost the thread somewhere. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know. I think, like you know, he got too big for himself. He he was elevated to a level that he could not live up to. Yeah, um, for sure. And,
0: it's called drinking your own coffee. Yeah. yeah. It and I mean, who knows what happened
1: if he had stayed at it and kept working with Carmike. And maybe Carmike was the balance he needed to, like, you know, yeah. check him in. but Or that could have ruined their friendship. I mean, Romero and Carmike and all those guys at it are still friends this day. And, you know, Romero's not living on the streets. He didn't Die of a heroin right. overdose or shoot himself in the mouth like Kurt Cobain. He makes like, like 20 grand a gig. He, yeah. He's living a comfortable life in Ireland but with also a family. Got John he's making Carmack, games.
2: Who oh, yeah. I mean, John Carmack he's president. living it up. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, living it up. He will be a billionaire, you know. Here's
1: the thing uh, John Romero will be able to make games until he wants to not make games anymore. Like, yeah. I, his games do well enough and stuff where someone will always give him money to make more of them. Right. Um, he, you know, he's not getting triple a budgets. There's not a single studio in the world that would give him a triple a budget. Right. Um, but he's probably enjoying his work. He's got a quiet life of his family in Ireland. Like, I think he is happy and I would I, I'm sure there's interviews where he talks about if he would do anything differently you know if, if he would and I'm sure there's some mistakes he had made but I think ultimately I think he's proud of the impact he's had on the industry and I
2: you know I think yeah.
1: I think he deserves to be remembered but I also think he's a cautionary tale
2: yeah, it is a cautionary tale and if I were him, um, I would have taken a gun to the whole office <laughs> a long time ago you know and gunned down everybody that ever wronged me. <laughs> And uh, made my own games afterwards, which I probably wouldn't have because I would have been from a prison cell. So. Right, also, yeah. Uh,
0: See, we just have a different philosophical outlook on life, James, because if I were him, I would have, you know, gone to work for some Japanese company to make weird porn-based <laughs> game show video games. <laughs> And live happily ever after. Absolutely.
1: Craft. Absolutely. <laughs> well, do um, uh, you guys have any closing thoughts before I
2: uh, take us out? No, I mean, um, yeah. Great Thank job. You. Really good job. Really good job on this one. Great research. Awesome. Uh, I'm excited to do the series. Yeah.
1: I hope I articulated why the actual game design itself was bad. We were running pretty late by, to- by the by time I got to that, so I sped through it a little bit. But oh, you good. know. Um, I also, I want to close out by citing my sources, so I pulled a lot from two PC gaming articles, a Giant Bomb article, uh, the Motherboard YouTube channel, uh, the inside PC gaming interview found on YouTube, uh, uploaded by a account named Foxhack, um, a, the uh, Rez YouTube channel, and Matt macluscus youtube channel Uh, i'm sure i butchered that but i just wanted to like say where i got my sources from i tried to state everything in my own words except for when i was quoting directly or taking from wikipedia Um, i might have used a couple other things here or there but those are the main sources so if you want more information it's out there but i will actually say that this is i'm confident saying this is the most complete biography of the daikatana saga of john romero's life I could not find a single source that had all this
2: information together. I think I have assembled the most complete history of this story. Not only Daikatana, but I feel like this has set the foundation for us to go on for video games as a whole from Mm -hmm. now on. I mean, this has definitely led to... We talked about the origins of FPS, Mm -hmm. uh, the origins of 3D, the origins... We'll go from here on out. I mean, we don't need to get into...
0: I really... Uh, No, I like it. I was going to say, I loved when we talked about how the uh, actual game was designed in a sense of, you know, 2D versus 3D, that technology, like that's fascinating shit. Yeah, me
2: neither. Yeah. Thanks
1: guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, If you don't mind, I'll, uh, I'll close this one out. So if you guys want to go and give your pluggables first.
2: Yeah.
0: uh, Yeah. You can find me, uh, you know growing my hair out, wearing glasses, and becoming a Japanese sex guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, go ahead, if you're interested in uh, film stuff, follow me on Twitter at abracadabra_dev.
2: You can find me at Jimmy Deloy or James Wyatt Scott, depending on where you're looking for me. You can also find me uh, doing cocaine in a 60,000 square foot video game office. Uh, not doing any work at all.
1: <laughs> um, you can find me at Drake cummings on instagram drake underscore cummings on twitter hollywood drake on tiktok my merch store at raging20smerch.com uh and youtube at drake cummings uh you can also find all of the film history history of film stuff on all the socials Just type in film history for history film film history F H H F official all that stuff we're on twitter we're, if there's a social media platform we might be on it we're on about half of them yeah um but uh check it out anyway and uh, you can find me sucking it down of John Romero. Suck it down. And his Ferrari heading on to his mansion and not, go, not picking up any calls from the dev team. That was Game History. The, the history, history of Games.
3: Games. You know what I'm talking about.